Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 216 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is What Lurks in the Woods, an interview with Nicole Bell. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, I had a chance to read What Lurks in the Woods while I was traveling a couple of weeks ago, and I really enjoyed this book. And I was thinking that if I was going to recommend two books to someone who is new to the journey, I'd probably recommend that they read Bite Me, because I think that was a really great memoir for someone to learn how to deal with their journey and build themselves a toolbox that would be necessary for healing. And I'd also recommend that they read What Lurks in the Woods because I think Nicole Bell has really captured the essence of the importance of building a team and understanding how to help your family to help you. Which, as you know, is very anxious to have Nicole on the podcast because frankly, she doesn't have Lyme disease. We even shared this with Nicole before we started the podcast. And as it turns out, my concerns were unfounded. Russ, Nicole's husband, was diagnosed with Babesia, Bartonella, Lyme, heavy metal toxicity, and a wide variety of other illnesses. But what's most interesting about this case is he started off with just depression, anxiety, and a volatile mood, not your classic Lyme symptoms. So it took a long time to get diagnosed. Some of the lessons we learned from Nicole and Russ's journey are that a typical MRI is not gonna be helpful in evaluating a Lyme patient. There are other scans that we can look at that are much more helpful for Lyme patients. She also talked to us about Lyme rage and psychological symptoms due to Lyme and how she found they weren't really due to Lyme disease, but a different co-infection. We also learned about Bartonella and how tricky it can be to treat and specifically what worked best for Russ and how he was able to overcome Bartonella. Matt, I think the saddest part of this interview for me is that I kept thinking about Dr. Alan McDonald and I couldn't help but to think that had Dr. McDonald not been shut out from the research journals that perhaps Russ's outcome would have been different. Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Nicole Bell to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me today. I'm excited. We are really excited too. So today is a really big day in the life of Nicole Bell and the Bell family. So talk to us about what's so exciting about today. Well, today is the book launch. So I have written a memoir about our family's experience with uh, Alzheimer's disease and Lyme disease and all the co-infections. And it's actually, I chose this day because it's also my husband's birthday. It's really his story. He was the one who became chronically ill. And so we're trying to get our story out there to honor him and to honor the journey that we went through and to help other people. So Nicole, talk to us first about the name of the book and why you chose the title that you did. Uh, well, I, I think that the first thing was obviously his, the root of his disease ended up being tick-borne illness. And so as part of our journey with tick-borne illness, I frankly became paranoid with going in the woods. I mean, we, we live in North Carolina and we chose that spot because of the woods. I love the green. I grew up in the Boston area and I love the green and the beauty of it. But then once we were exposed to ticks, it became more triggering and anxiety than I ever would have imagined. And that became a source of fear constantly. I mean, every time my kids would go out to play, I would get heart palpitations. <laughs> and um, and then later in the journey, there was also symbolic because my husband actually, as part of his disease, started hallucinating and he thought people were living in our woods and trying to kill us. And so there was just so much fear and angst about the woods, which really was my originally my peaceful place and my comfort place. And it, it transformed everything for me that it just seemed really central to the story. 
So Nicole, now of course, woods, the woods can be a scary place, right? Because there are all kinds of spooky things that you can't see, certainly at night in the woods. And as it turns out, if you focus on some of the challenges that we would face if we were in the woods and we weren't protecting ourselves, they can be scary places, but it could also be a beautiful place, right? And, and it's sort of the intersection between the beauty and the pain that comes along with your story that sort of is captured in the in the title. So I thought it was a really cool title after reading the book. Uh, so I, I do want to thank you for sending me an advanced copy of the book because it really is a beautiful book. And I strongly urge our listeners to purchase What Lurks in the Woods and read this book. And we're going to outline for them through your story um, why this would be helpful to them on their journey. And of course, in the introduction, you talked about why you wrote this book. So can you share with our listeners why you wrote the book? Yeah, I mean, as a caregiver, it was just a really difficult journey. Um, I'm, I'm an engineer by training. And so I like to have everything organized. I'm a project manager. I'm an engineer. I solve problems and dealing, being a caregiver was by far the hardest thing that I had ever done. And I needed to process it. I needed to put it in its place. I needed to get organized and, and to learn all the lessons that kind of went along the way. And so I didn't feel like I could kind of move past the experience until I had really leveraged and learned everything that I possibly could. And then as I was doing that journey, I realized that it was a way that I could really start helping others and they could learn from our successes and our mistakes and make their journey that much better. And that became a calling to, to really help others on their journey so that, um, you know, they would have the best possible outcome. So, Nicole, we've actually interviewed folks in the past who have engineering backgrounds, and some of our folks, for example, I remember a young woman named Lorne Pfeiffer, who's a brilliant young woman who's doing some great work in this community, and she argued that Lyme disease is an engineering problem. Would you agree with her? And if you do, tell us why. Yes, I absolutely would. And I think the reason I'd say that is, you know, the traditional medical system is set up for acute care, right? You, if you break an arm, I mean, a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, my son broke his pinky and we went to urgent care and it was fabulous, but chronic illness is really more of a systems-based approach. You can't look at any one body system and solve the problem. You have to look at the person as a whole, as a system. And that really is something that engineering has figured out. I, my, former job was in robotics, which is a, a very complex system in software, uh, you know, motors, actuators, sensors, everything has to come together in order to find what pieces are broken. broken. And so that systems-based approach, I mean, at one point I actually sat down and did a fishbone diagram, which is where you kind of map out all the different ways that the systems could go wrong to actually try and bring to light what is the core root cause. And I think that's so essential in chronic illness. And it's not something that medicine is, is really trained to do. And it's not set up. I mean, you go in, you have 15 minutes and the expectation is at the end of that 15 minutes, you get a pill that's going to solve all your problems. And that's just not the way it works. And so I think that we need to dig deeper. And I think that systems-based approach that we use in really complex engineering, um, you know, uh, machines and, and types of things is really going to be what the next step of healthcare is going to require. Okay, so let's pause there for a second and uh, talk a little bit about your background. I want to give our community a context for Nicole Bell, and then we're going to dig into some of these issues that you just started to uh, address, because I'm really excited to debate some of this with you. Uh, and I've been looking forward to debating this with you since I read your book a couple of weeks ago, but I want to pause there. So let's talk about Nicole. Nicole, where did you grow up and, uh, and what was your childhood like? 
So I grew up just south of the Boston area and, um, you know, my entire life and my growing up experience, I think was pretty calm. I mean, really nothing noteworthy. I've heard a lot of challenging stories, but my family was very comfortable. We were like middle-class, you know, nothing really interesting to tell of. I had a lot of opportunities and was very fortunate. And I was always very competitive. I was an athlete, student athlete, and um, worked really hard, did well in school, ended up graduating from high school and went to MIT. Um, so wasn't it was kind of interesting. I wanted to be an engineer, but I wanted to go to a big college school. And so my parents were like, if you can go to MIT, you really should. And so against my own stupid teenage brain, I, I agreed with them and went, and it was the best decision that I ever made. And, um, there I studied kind of material science and engineering. Um, that was my early passion and got into the electronics industry. So my career is actually a little scattered. I, I've, I like new challenges and I like startups. And so I was in the electronics industry for a while, but that's a really challenging industry to get into startups because it takes a billion dollar fabrication facility. And it's really just not very, uh, amenable to innovation and, and small, you know, smaller companies entering the space. And so mid-career, I actually switched into uh, a bio, more of a bio-focused and went back to school, went to Duke and got a master's in um, biomedical engineering. And then since then, I've been in the medical device space, either diagnostics or mostly, most recently surgical devices. So let's go back to your time as a young gal in, in Boston. And um, we, we would probably pronounce the, the, the name of the city differently. But uh, by the way, are you a Red Sox fan? I am. Is I'm that going to so, like just totally tank this interview? Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really sorry to hear that, especially since your your team took my Yankees out. But we'll 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 forgive you for that for the moment. Um, and talk to us about what it was like to be uh, first someone who had an aptitude for writing, because you talk about that in your book that you had this mm -hmm. aptitude for writing. And I think it's important for our folks to understand that that is one of your gifts. But you also you also had this engineering um, aptitude as well, uh, and that was identified pretty early on in your life. So tell us about uh, how you developed these dual passions in your childhood before you went to MIT. Well, I always like to write. I mean, I think that I am a ruminator. I, I have things... I like to solve problems. And when I can't solve the problems, they, they just spin in my head and they spin over and over again, and they will make me insane. And so I, oh, early on, I kind of identified writing as a way to work through that. I mean, even something as simple, you know, as simple as being an adolescent and dealing with different personalities that you grow up with. And I remember, I remember writing in high school about my first encounter encounter with like real racism, and I just couldn't process it. And so I decided to write about it. And so I, those are the types of things that really help the writing really helped me process and figure that out. But deep down, I've always been really good at math and science and I like rules and order and, and trying to figure things out. And I love that in my physics class, like one equation could help me unlock dozens of problems, if not hundreds of problems. And I always had an aptitude for math. And so engineering just really seemed a good fit for me. And frankly, making a career as a writer seems really difficult. So, um, but I always had gravitated even in my career towards communication. So a lot of times engineers, uh, God bless their souls are, are not necessarily the best communicators. And so in my career, I always kind of ended up being 
a liaison between different folks, engineers and attorneys, engineers and business people, and telling that story, you know, between those two types of, of people. And so, um, and I did technical writing, you know, along that lines, but this was as my husband really got back into his journey and I became difficult, that ruminating cycle began again, and I was trying to figure it out. And so I started journaling and I just, I had to get it out on the page and I had to figure out how to process it. And then over time, it became clear that I really wanted to do something with those journal entries and turn it into a book. And so, um, that was really a blessing because the journal entries really, you write them in real time and it led to a lot of detail and a lot of the actual, you know, just the nits and gritty of the, the whole experience. And, um, and that allowed me to go back. It's amazing. I think I have a, through this whole experience, I have a whole new appreciation for the memory and what you remember and what you, how you change your memories over time. And so having that concrete stuff written down has really been invaluable, but I think it's that ruminating cycle that I was trying to break. That is what drew me back to writing. So now let's talk about your relationship with your husband. How did the two of you meet and how did that romance develop? So, um, right out of college, my MIT professor founded a company. So he was my advisor and he wanted me to come and join the company. And so I did. And one of our first executives was Russ, my husband. And he uh, came in, he had been in multiple startups in the semiconductor industry and done very well. He was uh, very successful and had done a lot of roles in either business development or marketing. And so he was friends with one of the venture capitalists that helped fund the company. And they brought him in as the VP of business development. And that was how we met. And really, I remember the first time I met him, I remember thinking he was very interesting and intriguing, but he was much older. He was 20 years older than me. I mean, there was nothing romantic about my first encounter with him, but we, then ended up, I ended up being in charge of the patent portfolio because again, that communication of trying to tell the story and figure out how to take the assets of the company and then explain to customers why they would want to buy it. And he was the VP of business development. So he was the person in charge of licensing, which ended up being core to the business model. And so we ended up traveling together a lot for uh, three years, we were kind of, I don't know, Mutt and Jeff, whatever, <laughs> you know, people you want to put together traveling around the world and, um, trying to make this technology mainstream. And, uh, in the process, we became really good friends and then eventually fell in love. Um, which as I said, was not really expected for me. He was in a whole different life stage and so forth. But I think we were just, he was the smartest person I ever met and he was so intriguing. And I just always wanted to learn more about him. And after dozens and dozens of late night dinners in remote locations, I realized that my feelings for him were more than professional. So give us some detail on what you learned about him, specifically what types of things he was doing, what types of successes he had, and then how did that ultimately lead you to uh, find yourself falling in love with him. He was just an interesting character. I mean, he had a very troubled childhood, um, you know, uh, not as, you know, difficult as maybe some other folks, but he almost raised himself. I mean, he had a very overbearing 
older brother, which always brought drama into the family, lots of interactions with drugs. There was actually even a drive-by, actually it wasn't a drive-by, which I incorrectly said in the book, it was actually a walk-by, his brother corrected me, <laughs> a walk-by shooting <laughs> by his house. And, um, and then another time he pulled a gun on Russ and Russ had to jump out a second story window to get away from him. So he just never felt safe. And he, as an adult had worked through a lot of those issues and that anger and just really was in tune with who he was. But I think the biggest attribute that I loved about him was that he was just ridiculously funny. He was, he was very charming. He could tell a joke at any, any pinpoint in a conversation and just make you laugh. Um, and that in the combination with his really deep intelligence was just captivating. I was always, intrigued by interesting characters. And I really still have yet to meet another character as interesting and intriguing as him. He, he just had this air about him. Everybody gravitated towards him at parties. He was just exceedingly charming, but not arrogant. And over time that really kind of captivated me. So share with us some of your husband's accomplishments first before you met him. And then after you met with him. So he was the first one in his family to college, you know, and that actually was, uh, really, he was just a really driven individual. So he got into a passion of playing the guitar. That was the way that he got, um, away from his troubled family. He would just hours and hours, like in his bedroom closet, playing the guitar. And as a result of that, he got into soundboards and amplifiers and they couldn't afford to buy their own. And so he really got into building his own. And so that got him into electrical engineering. And he ended up going to college as an engineer, eventually went to Georgia Tech and got a master's degree. So his degrees were in electrical engineering and computer engineering. And then from there, he did a bunch of different roles, ended up really becoming an executive in the semiconductor industry. And he was in charge of kind of customer facing roles. So his first, um, not his first, his first major role, I guess, was as like a field applications engineer. And your primary role is to interface with the customers and to figure out what their problem is and then to solve it for them. And he ended up running the entire um, North American applications engineering force. And then from there went to multiple executive roles, either in marketing or business development in startups and, and did extremely well. I mean, he had a very good problem solving aspect. It was a very talented engineer, but he was also a very in tune business executive. And so he knew how to solve problems and negotiate um, and really make things happen. So before you and he started dating, he was a very accomplished um business executive. He was, he was an academic. He was, he was, he was an engineer. He was very accomplished. And, and it was, it was that part of him in addition to his, his, his charming, uh, his charm and his, uh, and his humor that caused you to ultimately be attracted to him and your romance began. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner. And when you meet someone, I mean, I was in my early twenties and you meet someone who's been through so much and had so much life experience and been successful. It was like, wow, I really, this guy's kind of really got it together. I want to learn from him and I want to try and figure out how he accomplished what he's done and the lessons that he's learned along the way. And so I think that was what initially really drew me to him. And so I just kept asking questions and asking questions. And then I realized, wow, this guy's really captivating. And, and then, as I said, over time, it really morphed into something more. 
So talk to us about first your background in uh, in the outdoors, meaning what kinds of outdoorsy things were you doing during your childhood? You said you're an athlete. Um, were you spending a lot of time outdoors? And if you were, what kinds of things were you doing to keep yourself physically healthy so that you can perform at the highest levels? So um, I wouldn't say that I was like outdoorsy woodsy as a kid. We lived in a suburb. And so I played sports. I played soccer, basketball, tennis, you know, so kind of controlled environment type sports. I don't remember doing a lot of hiking or woods playing just because it was a really, we grew up in a relatively well-developed town and there wasn't a lot of that around. Um, now in terms of, you know, training and so forth, I really just did what I needed to do for the sport. I was a three sport athlete. And so it was whatever we ended up having to do for the practices and so forth. Um, I think I came, became more outdoorsy in terms of going into the woods. As I got older, we did a lot of hiking and actually Russ was one of the people that pulled me more into that. He grew up in Georgia and he loved the woods. He was a big outdoorsman, hunting, fishing, um, shooting, all sorts of things that drew him into the woods. And he kind of, you know, brought that into our relationship. And frankly, I loved it. Okay. So we're going to talk about you and Russ and the outdoors in a minute, but I want to focus on you first as, as a gal growing up in the line belt, right? You, uh, you grew up in, in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, you're on, you were growing up in part of the East coast line belt. Uh, you were also this smart geeky kid who was taking science courses and doing really well in those types of courses. Were you given any information either in your formal education, meaning in school or in your informal, uh, informal education, whether it be through sports or any other activities about ticks and tick diseases? So school, absolutely not, nothing. Um, sports, absolutely nothing. I think the only exposure that I really had to Lyme disease was actually my mom. So my mom has a tendency for paranoia and certain things. And she had read about Lyme disease. And I think the first time I really remember hearing about Lyme disease, I was probably like a preteen, um, maybe 12 or 13, I guess that's officially teen. Um, and a cousin of mine took me on their vacation to watch their toddler. So I was kind of like a built-in babysitter and we went to Martha's vineyard and my mother was like, okay, you need to be careful of ticks, stay out of the tall grass and wear bug spray. And that was, and I was like, mom, you're just nuts. What's going on with you? Why are you so crazy? But that was really the first time that I heard about Lyme disease. And I don't honestly know what her exposure, but she was constantly reading health magazines and different things, but she kind of instilled that paranoia relatively early. Um, but I didn't understand it. And I didn't really know why. And frankly, because I was a teenager, I was like, oh, mom's crazy. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I now know that my mother was actually knew a lot about what she was talking about and not just in tick-borne illness. Thanks, mom. And, uh, you know, but that was really my first exposure. But in terms of my formal education, there was absolutely nothing. So there was even, even, so your mother's responsibility, of course, was to keep you safe. And that's what moms do, right? She right. was, she was concerned about some, some potential illness that you could contract and she alerted you to that, but she didn't have a whole lot of information to help you, to help you keep yourself safe from that. She was just alerting you to, I guess, something that was lurking in the woods and couldn't give you any information about how to avoid that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it was basically just stay out of the tall grass, you know, wear bug spray. Although I don't ever remember actually using bug spray. I, I just remember staying out of the tall grass. That was the message I took away. But, um, 
you know, it was a long time ago. So I'm, she may have given me more detailed instructions, but my brain has since killed those neuro circuits. <laughs> so now let's talk about, let's talk about your husband. You said your husband grew up in Georgia. He was an outdoorsy guy, hunter, fisherman. Uh, and that became a part of your life as your, your lives began to develop together. So talk to us about what those experiences are like and how you became, I guess, either comfortable in the woods or you began to love uh, spending time in the woods. Yeah. So I think he, at the time that we met, he was living in New Hampshire and I was living in Boston. And so, you know, New Hampshire obviously has an enormous amount of beautiful woods and beautiful hiking trails. And I think that that was just on the weekends, any, anytime, if he was bored, he would pick up and he would go hiking, he would go hunting. He was a big sporting clays shooter. And that's a lot of people don't know what that is, but I describe it as, well, actually he described it as golf with a shotgun. Um, and so you're just basically walking around a course in the woods, um, you know, paved trails or not paved trails, but like gravel trails and shooting different, uh, orange sporting clay targets. And so I think that was uh, one of the things that we really started doing first, because it was a huge passion of his. And then later we also started doing lots of hiking and then mountain biking was also a really big um, love of his. That was something that I was, it was difficult for me to get into, you know, jumping rocks and twigs and so forth. But I eventually came to love that as well. And yeah, so just on the weekends, that's what we would do. It was something to get outside. It was very calming. I really enjoyed it because I was always a very athletic person. And I mean, who doesn't love nature? I mean, I guess there are people, but for me, it's very calming and it's beautiful. And you know, but then again, to that earlier education, the, the tick thing didn't really come back into mind. It was just, Hey, we're out in nature. It's beautiful. And that's what it is. So that's really where I want to go with this, Nicole, and why I'm directing you to, to this portion of your journey, right? I mean, you, you had this intellectually gifted husband mm -hmm. who was accomplished. You, um, you're now introduced to a new part of life, a new lifestyle where you're now outdoorsy and you're participating in these hunting activities and these, and these hiking activities and these, and these cycling activities. And as your husband's introducing you to these different activities and teaching you, for example, um, how to shoot a shotgun in this process or um, how to uh, perform as a cyclist, uh, you know, when you're mountain biking, was he ever talking to you about steps you should take to be safe, for example, when using your shotgun with the safety protocols put in place when you're participating in the, in the use of the shotgun, for example. So safety for the shotgun or safety for ticks? No, let's, let's focus <laughs> on shotgun first. I want, I want to know what safety precautions he was offering to you because obviously you're, you're romantically involved with someone who cares about you and wants to keep you safe. Right. So yeah. when you're, when you're being introduced to this, to this clay shooting, for example, mm -hmm. with their safety protocols that he was teaching you so that you wouldn't shoot yourself or shoot someone else, for example. Absolutely, yeah. So in sporting clays, it's very controlled. You step into a stand and there's usually like two bars on either side of you. And the rule is, is you're always unloaded. And, you know, if you have a, um, uh, you know, a, like a shotgun, you keep it broken open or you keep the, the action backwards. And so, it's only loaded and ready to fire if your, your barrel is pointed in between those two boards. And that's a very defined target and there's nothing down there. And so there's very defined rules that you follow and not doing it is really, really bad form that could get you kicked out of the course. And so that's just part of when you go shooting that you 
you have to learn. And I think later when we did, we ended up doing pistol shooting and other types of shooting. There's just very well-established range rules of what you do, what you don't do, where you point the gun, when you reload. And there's basic tricks. Like when you're starting to use a pistol, you, um, you just put one bullet in, so you don't have recoil having you doing anything stupid. And he was a really good instructor in that aspect of it. What about cycling? Was he, when you were, when you began your mountain biking experience with your husband, was he giving you safety instructions on how to be safe on a mountain bike and how to negotiate uh, the different elements of a course when you're mountain biking? Sure. I mean, there's different ways to go over stumps and rocks and obviously wearing a helmet is the most important thing. I still remember very vividly one of the first things we went in New Hampshire and he was trying to get me to just be calmer on the course. Cause I was like super tight and super nervous about going through. And then no more, like no sooner that I was really starting to start to feel comfortable. He totally fell over and whacked his head on a rock. <laughs> I was like, well, this isn't really helping me, but he had his helmet on and his helmet protected his head. And then he told me, he's like, after you crash in a helmet, you have to get a new one. So like just stuff like that, that, um, Although that crash didn't do much to instill my confidence. It took me a couple of rides to get back <laughs> to get back on that again. But um, yeah, I think there's just things that you learn about any sport that will teach you techniques and teach you tips to be safe. So Nicole, one of the things you shared with us earlier is what one of the things that attracted you to your husband was that he was somebody who taught you a lot, right? He, you as a lifelong learner wanted to learn from him and he had this diverse set of experiences and he was often sharing them with you. And as somebody that he cared about, he was constantly teaching you how to be safe when you're engaging in these new activities. It sounds yes. like he was a great teacher, correct? Absolutely. So did your great teacher, when he was introducing you to the woods and all the different activities you're doing in the woods, ever give you any instruction about how to keep yourself from safe and healthy when coming in contact with ticks or other vectors that are a part of a woodsy experience? I would say not really a little bit. I mean, he, he used DEET as, you know, to, um, spray, but it was mainly for mosquitoes, um, in that context. I think he was from Georgia and he's like ticks are a way of life and ticks are not necessarily dangerous. You just take them off and you're fine. And I don't think that there was a fear of that. It want a bunch of mosquito bites. So I'm going to spray a bunch of deed on me. And he did that regularly. Um, but ticks were just something that he was used to. And I remember freaking out because my mother had instilled this, you know, fear early on. And he's like, Oh, I've pulled dozens of ticks off of me. It's really no big deal. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, um, not sure I would agree with that statement now, but <laughs> that was how it was perceived. So let's talk about that experience in particular. During the course of the time that you were spending time with Russ in the woods and engaging in these outdoorsy activities, do you ever recall finding a tick on yourself? Yes. Yeah. I pulled at least a few off of me. Yes. And were, were you with Russ at the time that you were discovering these ticks and what kinds of instruction was he giving you about these ticks that he had been dealing with for most of his life? Um, it was really just, let's take them off properly, you know, kind of make sure we get the head out, you know, take them out so that they, you don't leave anything into your body. And it was really just more about proper removal. And then, I mean, he was aware of Lyme disease. He had lived in New Jersey and he had had himself tested, uh, one time and, um, it was really more, okay, 
just be aware if you have any fever symptoms or weird symptoms, keep out an eye out for a rash. You know, those were the types of things that we were definitely aware of, but none of that ever happened. So, you know, we went and even a couple of times, um, based upon his experience previously and my experience, we had had ourselves proactively tested on our own, even before all of this to just, you know, get a Western and get tested because we had been bitten by so many ticks, but they came back negative and we were like, okay, everything's good. So, so why were you doing that testing, that proactive or prophylactic testing? What was just because we had been exposed to so many ticks, you know, I don't think it was like, Hey, we have any symptomology and anything was, it was just like, we've been bitten a lot. And especially, you know, Russ, we'd been bitten a lot and it was just something that was part of our lifestyle. And again, my mother had instilled this early paranoia, which as I got older, I realized maybe I should listen to her. And so, you know, you can order from like any lab test now or any other place you can go and get a test done. And so we had done that as part of just a prophylactic screening. So what were you planning to do with this prophylactic screening um, if it had come back positive? We would have just um, gone to our regular primary care doctor and said, what do we do? You know, and now when you when you were doing this prophylactic uh, screening, were you making sure that your doctors and and or medical professionals were noting in your medical records that you had been bitten by ticks many times, you had concerns about Lyme disease and you were and you were being tested? No, this was just something we completely did on our own, ordered it on our own, went, did it and came back negative and we're like, okay, moving on. Okay. So now let's, let's talk about how your life is developing over us. Your romance begins, you, you get married and now you're, you're developing a family together. So talk to us about how your life was proceeding together after, um, after the romance began. Um, well, when we, after we got married, we moved to North Carolina and we built our house in the woods. It was a beautiful lot that we picked because we loved, you know, that area and it was kind of untouched by humanity. And so we were doing really well. He had decided when we went to North Carolina that he was going to step back from his career. We knew we wanted to raise a family and he was going to be Mr. Mom and really help take care of the kids. He said, he kept telling me it was my time to shine in my career. He was extremely supportive. He was probably my biggest fan in terms of my potential and what I can do and had was really honestly the one who encouraged me to go and switch careers and go back to school, get into, you know, biomedical engineering so that I could get back into startups and really enter into that space. He was the one that had that idea and he was really like an advisor. I, I would come home on at night and, you know, tell him all the challenges that I'd had during the day. And he would coach me and give me advice. And we would continuing continue having fun on the weekends and going shooting and doing things. And then eventually after our house was built, we had our first son, Ryan, and then young life with kids began. <laughs> so Nicole, let's talk about your, your college and, and postgraduate education. So you went to MIT mm -hmm. uh, and then you went to Duke, two of the top schools in the country. And uh, your, your major, you said your, when you went to graduate school, your major was bio. So um, my undergraduate degree at MIT was in material science and engineering. And I also have a master's from MIT in that. Okay. And then when I mid-career around, you know, age 30, I actually, I went back to, that's when I went to Duke and that was in biomedical engineering. Okay. So during, during your time, either at MIT or at Duke, um, did you receive any information about ticks or tick diseases? No. 
I mean, it was 100% engineering focused curriculum. Okay. Didn't take any science courses when you were, uh, when you were, uh, I mean, yes, but science like chemistry, you know, um, and even biology courses, it was like cellular biology, immunology. It wasn't anything that would have touched upon vector borne diseases. No. Okay. So now, uh, you and Russ have your first child, uh, Russ agrees to be Mr. Mom, uh, and, uh, you are now, uh, moving forward with your career. Um, do you start to see any um, health issues developing with Russ during this window of your time of your time together? So he was extremely healthy, quote unquote, in terms of like he could he was very active. He would do like all of I remember every year we have a ton of mulch in our yard and he would wheelbarrow like every single load of mulch himself. It would take him two days and he was very physically active, um, ate well, exercised. But the first things I think that I started to notice were more mood-based. He became irritable, depressed. Um, he would be angry. He would have bouts of that the early stages, I wouldn't quite call it rage, but it was like pre-rage where he would just get really angry about silly things, which were very uncharacteristic because, when we first got married, we would never fight. I mean, we were both engineers. And so we just kind of developed this rapport where we would talk things out and we would argue in a very factual way. And whoever had the better answer won the argument, you know, and a lot of times, actually most times we would each realize the merits and the other's ideas, and we would kind of merge them and come up with a better solution. So it was a really empowering relationship where we worked together to get to the right solutions. But all of a sudden he was just really irritable. And to be honest, I chalked it off to the stress of young kids. You know, we had toddlers and then, you know, after when Ryan was three and a half, my daughter Haley was born and, you know, the stresses of parenting are real. And so you're not sleeping as much. And he also had, as having stepped back from his career, I said, well, you know, he's missing that fulfillment at work, that problem solving that I'm seeing every day and enjoying at work is a void in his life. And that's causing him to be depressed and unhappy. And, you know, you just chalk it off as life factors. Um, but then obviously over time, I realized that it was, it was more than that. And those were some of our first symptoms. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. Um, before he went through this personality transformation, and you just share with us that he came from this traumatic background, so he learned how to manage trauma very early on in life, and he poured himself into first artistic endeavors with the guitar, and then ultimately, ultimately into academic endeavors. So this is a man who knew how to manage trauma and knew how to deal with these kinds of challenges long before he ever met you. But then you and he met and you had this nice relationship where you never had any arguments and you were geeky engineers who would do what geeky engineers do when you had a difference and you would you would work through them in, in a very engineering type fashion. Now, he now has this, this radical change in personality, right? And it's extreme. Yep. Do you recall prior to this extreme change in his personality, Russ telling you that he was bitten by a tick or you having to help him remove a tick anytime just before this extreme change in personality? No, I can't say that I can. I mean, there were ticks that were like all present, you know, there was just, he was constantly landscaping and out in the yard. And so 
there were, it's not like there was just one event, there were multiple events. And so how that was spread through the years and the transition, I can't say that I remember anything that was triggering. It's, I'm um, asking like just before the symptoms developed, any, anytime just before that you remember him having been bitten by a tick. There could have been the timeline is not that crystal clear. And also I don't think his change was something that was like a switch. It was much more gradual. And I, you know, and you mentioned how he had a tumultuous childhood and he had dealt with the rage, but the reality was, is that he dealt with the rage, but he dealt with it more in his thirties, you know, during his twenties, he was pretty volatile and he was just, he hadn't really dealt with all all those emotions. But I think as he advanced in his thirties, he went through a lot of therapy. He kind of dealt with that. And so he really had evolved. But then when I, when those symptoms started coming back out, it was like, well, maybe he really hadn't dealt with that. And the life stresses are bringing it out. And so I chalked it off as well. Like maybe I, he had more, we were still a relatively young couple in our marriage. And I was like, well, maybe he had, hadn't dealt with his rage as much as I thought, because I knew that that was part of his history, but it wasn't my experience. But, you know, again, at over a marriage, you, you really get to know somebody. And so I, I questioned whether I had really assessed his personality correctly. Um, but it was, it was not a, like a switch. It was very gradual. And then there were lots of moments of, of normalcy where he seemed, you know, he seemed himself and everything was great. And we had a lot of, I, I almost describe it as like an, an emotionally abusive relationship at one point, like he would get really angry and really ragey. And then the next day he would be, you know, very apologetic and sorry. And it was like a, a lot of a roller coaster and it got worse over time. So it's, it was almost like watching your kids grow up. You can't see them change right in front of your eyes. That was more my experience. It wasn't like there was an event and he changed. Okay. So, but Nicole, there, there, there seemed to be, even if, even if the extreme nature of his personality change developed over time, there was this point where there was a difference for you, where you noticed he was behaving differently. I mean, you, you had, you had developed a friendship over a long period of time. You were traveling together for three years before you began your romantic relationship. So you knew this guy pretty well, right? Yep. And he certainly had overcome the trauma that he needed to overcome before you and he developed your relationship. And you certainly would not have been attracted to him if he was a nutbag and he was doing all <laughs> kinds of crazy things. Right. So there okay. was this, there was this moment where the change took place and I'm wondering what was happening just before that. If you've explored that, meaning if, if it was not a tick bite, and of course it seems like because you're in an endemic community that he was getting bitten all the time as were you and probably your children. Uh, but you know, were there, were there some immune disrupting events, meaning some stresses or something else that were happening just before he started to go through the personality change that you'd never seen before in all the time, all the time that you were together? I mean, I think that I, the stresses that were present, it was him retiring and then the young kids. And so those to me were attributed to the triggers. You know, I attributed those triggers to his change and just a dramatic change in lifestyle. I mean, it really was, he was home all the time. He was a very driven individual and he, he would even say, I'm, I'm just like a landscaper and a nanny. I'm, I'm, he wasn't feeling fulfilled and he wasn't, himself, you know, he had always worked obsessively hard. I mean, when he was younger, he was going to school, he was working a full-time job, he was playing in a band, he was constantly busy and constantly engaging in really, you know, aggressive pursuits that developed him mentally and physically and emotionally. And 
he just, I think he felt stagnant and that caused stress. And that's what I attributed it to at the time. And that's where I want to go with this, right? So right now we have a guy who's behaving very, very differently, extremely now differently than, uh, than he had been before. And certainly not the man you had fallen in love with, right? And now what's happening is in your mind, you're beginning to come up with different constructs or narratives to describe why this extreme change in behavior is happening, right? Yes. First, you're, you're thinking, hey, perhaps he didn't deal with the trauma from his childhood the way I think he had. Or perhaps I didn't properly engineer my attraction to him and I didn't maybe analyze all of what I needed to analyze before I fell in love with him. Or perhaps he's going through this, you know, this change in lifestyle and he really wasn't ready to settle down and be Mr. Mom. You know, he wasn't being fulfilled by that, right? So you were coming up with all these different constructs in your mind, but you never thought perhaps he's physically sick. Never. No. I mean, it, it was, it's like all the stories that you tell yourself, right? You justify things away. And, uh, you know, we went to therapy and we were trying to work through all of the issues and it sort of helped, you know, in some contexts, but never once did I think in, at least in the early days that it was some sort of illness. All right. So let's say with the early days, right? So you're now seeking outside help from psychologists, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, as a couple, you're working through these things, right? But now remember, Nicole, the context that we're working in here, consistent with what we're talking about here is you guys are in the outdoors all during your relationship. Your husband's been bitten by ticks many, many times. The two of you are concerned enough about that to go out and prophylactically get tested for Lyme disease, not in the context of working with a doctor, but be prophylactically be tested. So you have this, this concern in your mind, you're kind of blaming your mother for creating paranoia, but as it turns out, she was, she was giving you signals that you weren't reading, right? All of this is happening. And now we're starting to see some differences in behavior that we've never seen before. You're now working with psychologists who are, tr- who are trying to help you work through this, but the two worlds never come together, right? Nope. The, 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 the Lyme signals that you are getting and the changes that you were seeing were all being rationalized in your mind as, as something that either you missed or something he didn't overcome. Yeah, and I think that, that that Lyme signals that you reference, in my mind, Lyme signals were fever, rash, joint pain, things that I, you know, the first, when you Google Lyme, that's what comes up. And we didn't have any of that. And so it never uh, would have occurred to me that depression, anxiety, mood stability, irritability could be caused by tick-borne illness. Like that, that connection never was made in my head. But you went to other healthcare professionals, mm-hmm. mental health professionals, and you were looking for help to diagnose your husband's illness or your family's illness. Yeah, it was more marriage counseling kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. But they, but they were, that, again, mental health professionals who were yep. now helping you to try to overcome the challenges that were in your relationship. And you were describing his depression and his, and his anxiety and all of these other concerns that were developing. And no one ever said, hey, there's a possibility that he's suffering from some kind of a physiological um, illness that's causing this change in behavior. No. It was, again, it was more 
the lifestyle factors and just, you know, emotional state. It was not anything that could be biochemistry or infection-based. So Nicole, one of the things that we found really interesting when we interviewed Dr. Leo Shea, another one of the Lyme pioneers, um, is that Dr. Shea has argued to us that anytime there is an emotional illness, it is physiologically based. And that he is always taking his patients from the emotional, uh, from the emotional challenge to a place where they're trying to get to the root causes, which we're going to spend more time looking to, physiologically. And, um, and I think that, again, if we're going to identify failures in this, because it's, I think one of the things that's most challenging about one of the most challenging parts of, you know, your book, at least from my perspective, was, was that like, I saw this, I saw this illness coming long, long before it had come. And we have two brilliant people. You, again, uh, we'll just, because we're talking with you, you're a genius. You have the top schools in the country. You, you know, you are unique in so many different ways. If someone was going to, you're an engineer. If somebody's going to deconstruct very early on what's happening with somebody that she loves, who's now be, you know, who's crazy, who's crazy around her children. Yeah. If someone's going to have the tools to do that, it's Nicole Bell. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would have loved that. I think it's, you know, one of the things that I struggle with all the time is, is like, oh, I should have known. I should have known. I should have known. But I'd never been exposed to it. How would I have known? I mean, everything that I had been said was, or had been taught to me was fever, rash, joint pain. You know, I never once would have, you know, attributed depression to illness. I think that's one of the things that is my biggest takeaways is I absolutely agree with what you said in terms of, you know, emotional and, you know, other types of mental illness, there's so much biochemistry linkages that we don't understand, but that was knowledge that was hard learned on my part. And I had no training that would have actually pointed me in that direction. So Nicole, one of the things you say in your book is that you want to encourage people to trust their gut. Like that's one of the lessons you want to teach them. Talk to us about how you were talking yourself out of trusting your gut during this window of your journey with your husband, meaning your gut was telling you something. Yeah. Yeah. My gut was telling me that something was wrong, but I think the triggers were all seemed to be rooted in lifestyle. You know, I just, I have to be honest in that the connection to a, an illness or an infection, at least in the early days, just wasn't there. It was really more, he's unhappy. He's, you know, not liking being Mr. Mom. Maybe that wasn't the right move for him. And, but then at the same time, I would encourage him. I'm like, go back to work, start volunteering. But he, he would never follow through. Something held him back. Like it just, it it was uncharacteristic. And I started realizing more and more that something was wrong, but you know, I also had two young children and a full-time job and the ability to put all the pieces together really was, it didn't happen. And so it wasn't until his symptoms started getting more severe that finally, you know, the big, you know, baseball bat hit me in the head and said, okay, there's actually something really wrong here. So talk to us about how you got there. Uh, but I, I actually want to pause on that question and ask you one more thing. One, one of the, one of the folks we recently interviewed talked about flow meaning merging your head and your heart. And that's when you're in flow. And sometimes that's hard for really smart people, especially formerly educated people. 
Do you think because you are so smart and because you have um, you've re relied on your intellectual capacity for so long that that interfered with the ability for your head and your heart to come together at a time when um, when you were having these challenges and that the lack of flow or the inability to follow your heart maybe interfered with your ability to try to get through these challenges together as a family? Yeah, I mean, I think as an engineer, you're taught to follow the rules and follow the equations and follow what has been laid out before you in terms of the answers that have been figured out. And when you spend at least a cursory amount of time on that, you know, for depression and so forth, or it, it comes up as psychological factors or things that you should go to a therapist for. And Lyme comes up as a fever and a rash. And so, you know, putting those two pieces together was not something that was in the rule book for me, you know? And so I really didn't have any connection at that point. Okay. So let's, let's move forward with Russ's developing symptoms and how that's impacting you and your children. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I, I started to realize in about in 2016 that he was starting to have memory issues. You know, he was, having trouble remembering the schedule for the kids, even though it was the same time every day. And I just, again, at first I attributed it to, you know, not paying attention and not being engaged. But I think the moment when I really realized something was wrong was I was at work and I got a call from our security system, the alarm company, and the alarm was going off and they're wondering, you know, they call you, they make sure it's, it's just not an accidental, you know, um, uh, event in, or is it the real deal? And I, it was the same time that Russ got home with the kids and I talked to him on the phone and he couldn't shut the alarm off. And I kind of talked him through it and he eventually did. And we got it shut off. But then when I went home, you know, he was complaining and saying the alarm system's broken and it isn't, you know, this thing is, we need to get it fixed. And so I went home and I looked at it and everything was fine. And, you know, but I was, it, it triggered something. It was like, Hmm, this, this isn't right. You know, your gut telling you this isn't right. And then things kept happening. He would forget his keys and lose his keys and lose his phone and just little events here and there. Um, that when I started putting it all together, I was like, he's, he's having memory issues, you know, um, you know, one morning, the, the, the toaster, the pan on top of the toaster popped and it happened like every single morning, but you know, Russ like jumped up and he's like, what's that? And I was like, well, it's the toaster, you know, pops every morning. And he just looked so surprised. And, and he was the most observant person that I had ever met. He was always making fun of me because I'm always, again, the ruminating, I'm always in my own head and I don't notice stuff. And he, he didn't notice something that happened every day. And then it occurred to me, maybe it wasn't that he didn't, you know, he, that he forgot and that he didn't realize it. And that was like, finally, again, that baseball bat hit me on the head is like, wow, he's having memory challenges. And then I started paying attention. And I, then it was like one of those things where I'm like, how could I have not seen this? He's it's happening everywhere. And, you know, I just attributed it to this, like your kids, they change in front of your eyes and you kind of just, justify it away. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that, no, this changes more than just the gradual development. There's something seriously wrong here. So Nicole, at first Russ went from having symptoms of depression and anxiety and mood instability that you kind of dismissed because he wasn't working anymore. And as he said, he's become a landscaper and a nanny and your solution was to get back out there and go volunteer and, and, you know, do more things in the community, which he didn't do when you found it a little surprising. 
But once he started developing these memory issues and was really acting out of character for a man of his intellect, did you then follow up and pursue medical guidance or did you did you sort of justify away this new symptomology as well? Yeah, no, as soon as I realized that there were memory issues going on, then my first step was to convince him that was something was wrong, which, you know, was a challenge to say the least, especially since his mood had become increasingly volatile. And so I was able to do that and kind of convinced him to go see a doctor. And I think I made the mistake originally of saying, you know, you need to go see the doctor. And eventually I realized, you know, we lost a couple of months and then I said, okay, maybe I'll make you the appointment and go see the doctor. And so, but we eventually got there and I, I knew right away that I didn't want to go to a traditional medicine type environment. I just, you know, the 15 minute appointment where they take your blood pressure and, you know, take some basic blood work. I just knew I had a feeling in my gut that wasn't enough. And so we started in integrative medicine. And at that point I was, I was all in, I was researching and trying to figure out what could be going on. And Lyme disease came back to the top of the list. I mean, I read about brain fog and confusion and that's when I, cause I, you know, once I started looking for things that can cause memory issues, you know, then I started getting a lot more, um, into the Lyme. And so that was my first thought, knowing that we had been exposed to ticks. And, um, that, and then also heavy metals was another one that was a big thing for me because we had done so much shooting and Russ did a lot of the reloading of shotgun shells, which has a lot of exposure to lead. And so those were the top two things that I wrote in his intake. I did all of his intake appointment. Um, not because at that point I thought he was not capable. It was just because I, he wasn't as aware that as I thought he was still arguing with me that he was fine and that it was me thinking he was wrong and it was my issue. And so I wrote all of that in our intake appointment in our first, you know, first appointment with our integrative practitioner, but all of his lab work came back normal. She ran a Western blot and he only tested positive on one of, you know, he needed five and that, you know, all the rest of his normal, his lab work looked quote unquote normal. And she referred us to a neurologist. And that was kind of really the redirection that was critical in our case. So Nicole, talk to us about why you think Russ pushed back on going to the doctor. Do you think because of his cognitive decline, he truly didn't believe anything was wrong? Or do you think there was something else, possibly a fear of what was going on that held him back from wanting to go seek medical help? I, honestly, I, it's hard to really know. I think it was a little bit of both because in his more vulnerable moments, he would admit the fear. Um, but everything was an argument at that point in our relationship, anything controversial, like I said, we never used to fight, but at that point, even the most basic things, there would be an argument. It was just like his natural reaction was to go into fight mode. And so when you go to someone and say, I think you're losing your mind. I mean, I use better words than that, but that was essentially the message. You know, that you're going to get an argument like, well, of course not. Like, this isn't me, this is you. And so, and that was exactly what I got. You know, it was very much a, a resistance. I had to, I mean, the moment when I finally broke through, I think the only reason I was able to do it was because we had been fighting so badly. I was literally in tears and he, every time I got emotional, he would eventually open up and be more receptive. And that was the moment I was able to convince him that something was wrong. Cause I just said, this isn't us. This isn't who we are. Something's wrong. Like we should at least go check it out. And I was able to get him to do it, but you know, compliance on one day didn't necessarily mean compliance on the next. And so it was, it was an ongoing journey. 
And Nicole, I know you mentioned that, that Russ had this volatile mood, but can you give us an example of his behavior and what you mean by that in contrast to how he was before he got sick? Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book was, um, you know, my son was very active, you know, and he got in trouble a lot at school just because he couldn't sit still and he couldn't do, you know, he was, he was constantly up and about. And one day the teacher, you know, said something to Russ and he got upset because the teacher made Russ feel, um, you know, she, he felt attacked about Ryan's behavior and, you know, he came home and he was really angry. First, he was really angry with Ryan. And then we went back and we kind of figured out what had happened. And then he got really angry with the teacher. And then when I tried to talk him down from being angry with the teacher, then he got angry with me. It was just like this roaming rage that would just like any target that was nearby, there would be like napalm thrown on it. And it was, and it wasn't logical. It, it wasn't that, that dialogue that we used to have about facts and here's my evidence and here's your evidence was completely gone. It was like, I could have said the sky is blue and he would have argued with me. Um, it was just that natural reaction. And the only thing that would pull him out of it was when he, I frankly broke down and started crying. You know, that was like the only thing that would flip the switch. And all of a sudden he would say, oh, okay, something is not right. And then he would become conciliatory and kind. And then we would start talking. And it was, that was unfortunately not an uncommon experience at that time. So Nicole, talk to us about the importance of bringing a loved one with you to a medical appointment, especially when suffering from late stage Lyme disease and cognitive decline like, like Russ was. Yeah, I mean, I think his ability to really comprehend what was going on and to manage his own care was really, really hindered at that point. And so um, bringing someone who is an observer and someone who can write notes, I mean, as I've said, I'm an engineer, so I started writing things down and researching and asking questions. And to have that advocate there for you is really important. I think in Russ's case in particular, it was important because, I mean, he would go into the doctor and say that nothing was wrong. I mean, he, he would literally look at the doctor and say, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with me. You ask her what's wrong. You know, like it was, it was more me. And, and that, that anger again, kept fueling his, you know, our relationship and, and it was really difficult. He wouldn't have been able to go or even willing to go and get the treatment that he needed on his own. And so I was really the one who was kind of dragging him along, honestly saying, this isn't the man that I married. This isn't the person that I know you need to help me figure this out. So Nicole, we had a guest recently tell us that she would downplay her symptoms to the doctor and her mom would be very truthful and tell her what was going on. And the doctors interpreted that as her mom was just blowing things out of proportion. So do you think that the doctors you were seeing were thinking, well, Russ is telling us he's fine. He knows better. And maybe Nicole is just being a little dramatic. Do you think that played a role in any part of, of your journey here with Russ? Um, I think maybe a little bit with that first doctor that we went through. Um, I think once we went to neurology, you know, and they had done they had done some basic cognitive assessments and they saw the, he was actually having some pretty significant issues. Then that became more clear. And then they kind of guided us through, you know, scans, which then had pictures of the fact that there was an issue. And so then it became not as much about debate. It really became more about, you know, conveying that issue. And then frankly, as a caregiver, it was really difficult to have that conversation in front of Russ because he was very defensive and, you know, having that discussion and 
in front of him that all of the challenges became really difficult. So I want to go back to the, right before we get to the neurologist that you were researching when you first brought Russ to the doctor and Lyme came back on the table and you started to make the connection between the cognitive decline and the neurological symptoms with Lyme disease. And when the doctor tested, it came back negative because the Western blot didn't have enough bands. At this time, did the doctor tell you or did you find in your research that Lyme testing wasn't very accurate and you can still have a positive Lyme diagnosis even though the testing came back negative? The doctor certainly didn't say that. And, you know, I have to be honest and like in hindsight, I had, when I had worked in diagnostics, I had heard that Lyme diagnostics weren't great. Um, but you know, again, I'm an engineer that's trained to follow the rules. And so the test came back negative and she said, you know, Hey, it's not Lyme disease. And if you still think he has a problem, you should go to the neurologist. And so that was kind of the next step that we took. I think the, the thought of, Hey, maybe this test isn't what we need, or maybe we should dig further. It didn't come up. It was really more our, this is what the doctor said the next step is, and we should, we should move on to that. You know, I still was deferring to their advice and their recommendations. So when you saw the neurologist, did you bring Lyme back up to the neurologist or was it just sort of put on the back burner and you started to explore all the neurological possibilities with, with the specialist? I would say it was put on the back burner. It was part of his medical history, but at the time it was really more, we don't know what's going on with his case and I need you to help me figure it out. So Nicole, you told us that once you went to the neurologist, a lot of scans were performed that had irrefutable evidence that something was actually going on with Russ's brain. Talk to us about what tests were done and what those results were. So the first thing that we did was just a really comprehensive set of cognitive tests. And so the first day, it was literally an entire day filled with um, different different tests and different exams that were looking at his cognitive performance and where his deficiencies were. And I still remember the shock that of watching him take some of these basic tests. Uh, I mean, some of them were relatively simple, like what state do you live in? What town are we in? What year is it? Who's the president? But anytime it started getting into anything, which was, um, you know, more relational in space and time. You know, I remember one simple exercise where it was like a pattern matching and there was a, a, a key on the top of the screen with symbols and associated numbers. And then at the bottom, they would show you the associate put in the numbers. So it was basic pattern, you know, matching. And Russ, again, was an electrical engineer, computer scientist. I mean, he would write complex code that, um, you know, you have to think through seven or eight steps logically in order to do properly. And he just, he didn't know what to do. He was like, I don't get it. I, I don't understand. And I, I just, I remember literally sitting there with my jaw open, like what? Like I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea that it was that deep because he was not working. And so there wasn't a job to kind of be a harbinger of like, this is, I'm starting to fail at my cognitive capabilities. Um, and so I was shocked. And after that assessment, the, they recommended an MRI, his MRI came back, came back negative or normal. And then they, you know, from there, they recommended a PET scan, which looks at the metabolism in the brain. And that was where we saw that he had severe, you know, underactivity in his brain in certain sections. And that was when they diagnosed him with late stage, early, uh, early onset Alzheimer's. 
So talk to us about before you did the MRI and the PET scan and you were doing these cognitive tests with the neurologist and he was failing things that you knew he shouldn't have been failing. How was Russ responding? Did he realize that there was something wrong or was he so impaired that he didn't realize the severity of what was going on? It, his, his de facto response was always to get defensive. This test is screwed up. This is, I don't understand. This is, why are you making me do this? This is not something, why are we here? Like it was always defensive. And then he would lash out at me, you know, as this is your fault. Like you're the one who brought me here. I don't understand. So, and that's where I think some of the fear, as you mentioned, started popping up. Like, I I think that he, he did start to process that maybe something was going on. But, you know, his natural reaction was always to fight. And so it was really difficult. I mean, honestly, some of those days getting the assessments were really hard and really emotional because he was constantly fighting. So when, when you went and did the PET scan and it came back and what was the diagnosis again after the PET scan? It was late stage, early onset Alzheimer's. So you had a late stage, late stage, early onset Alzheimer's, right? So at this point, did it finally sink into Russ that there was something seriously wrong? Yeah, I think the, I think the moment, even before we had that diagnosis, I think at the end of that cognitive diagnostic day, um, you know, the doctor didn't exactly know what was going on, but he sat down with us and said, there's clearly an issue in your cognitive capabilities. And I think that it could be one of two things. It could be vascular dementia, and you've had some sort of stroke or restriction in your brain that's affecting blood flow. And that's why we want to do the MRI, or it could be Alzheimer's. And I think that was the moment, at least that I remember that it really seemed to sink in with Russ, that it wasn't just me saying that something was wrong. That was the first time a doctor had actually said, there's something wrong with you. And he used some pretty hard words to hear. I mean, Alzheimer's is a really hard word to hear. And so that was the moment where it sunk in. Um, and he started becoming a little bit more open. That doesn't mean that he wasn't combative in later appointments, but at least at that point, it was more than just his, you know, crazy wife telling him that something was wrong. So Nicole, from your standpoint, as you're probably doing a ton of research, the MRI was normal and now he's going for a PET scan. And even before the MRI, what were you hoping for as an outcome? Because you had to have been reading a ton of possible diagnoses that he could have had. What were you really hoping for that would have been the, the least severe outcome in your opinion? I mean, I was hoping for the stroke. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and that's like a really weird feeling. I remember when the doctor called me with the MRI results and she said, you know, his MRI is normal. And, and I had just been through a ridiculous experience that was anything but normal. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I was rooting for the stroke. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I didn't know what else to do because when what you're left with is Alzheimer's, it's like a death sentence, you know, and that's really difficult. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I was rooting for the stroke. <laughs> so, Nicole, talk to us a little bit more about what many of our our past podcast guests have described as Lyme rage, but Rich and I now believe to be Bartonella rage. Was Russ exhibiting any rage symptoms, and if so? you know, give us an example of, of a time when he exhibited those symptoms and what that was like for you. Um, so he, I would say he, so in the early stages or in the later stages, because I don't want to jump ahead too far. <laughs> I guess the both, you know, the, okay. Um, I would say 
in the earlier stages, it was really more that combative nature. It was the fighting about everything. He didn't ever get physically abusive. He didn't even until later, I think he would start maybe throwing something across the room, never at me, but he would get, um, you know, he would get angry enough that he would throw something, but it was really more, he would yell and, and get really nasty with his words. And then he would storm off you know, and it would take him hours, if not sometimes days to calm down and to kind of come back to himself. And that was kind of more in the earlier stage. Um, later on, it, it got more confounded with hallucinations and other things that, you know, was, it was a different kind of challenge. So do you think that Lyme rage is different than, I think what you called in your book, Lyme crazy? Do you think they're one and the same or do you think they're different things? Um, so I, like you, I attribute the rage piece of it more to the Bartonella. And I think that I come to that assessment through personal experience, you know, with him in terms of where he was in his treatment and when he would take medications or herbal tinctures that were more tuned for the Bartonella, that's when that mood instability really would come up and really heighten. I think when I speak in the book about Lyme crazy, I honestly, I think I use Lyme crazy, but I like, you know, in chronic Stephen Phillips and Dana Parrish, they use the Lyme plus, and I, I really should have, you know, adopting that or just tick-borne illness in general, because I, I don't think it's specific to Lyme. I think that the Lyme crazy I talk about in the book is really more one that it changes. It can change your mood, whether it's Bartonella, Lyme, or just the you know, the, um, the inflammation that's going on in your body, but then also the fact that when you go from doctor to doctor, they make you feel crazy because they say nothing's wrong and everything's okay. And you're, you, you should go see a psychiatrist because you're clearly fine. All your lab work is normal. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, really what I would say in terms of just how it, it puts you off balance. It made me feel crazy. And, as I've said, I, I like to be rational and logical, and that's really a difficult thing to hear as, you know, as an engineer who, who has spent her entire career trying to figure out problems. So it sounds like we're merging these, these things into a term called tick-borne illness rage, and that really you're defining it in two different ways or, or having two different pieces to it. And the first piece would be that because of what's going on physically from inflammation and the illness and the pathogens, you're responding aggressively because of the physiological side of things. But then on the other side, you're talking about all of this medical trauma and being denied by doctors and told by doctors you're crazy and not being recognized that causes another piece of rage because you're not getting the proper treatment you deserve. Is that kind of what you're telling us, Nicole? Absolutely. I would, I would say I have become more aware and empathetic to the link between biochemistry and behavior than I ever have before through this journey. But I've also become aware of the fact of how insufficient the traditional medical system is for chronic illness. I mean, I, I included some other people's stories in the book and one of, uh, you know, a friend of Russ's actually that he used to work with, um, his wife was sick for 20 years for doc for going from doctor to doctor to doctor, literally telling her crazy. She, you know, she had one where they finally referred her to a psychiatrist because you know, it had to be in her head. And she goes to that doctor and the doctor says that there's no issues with her psychologically. It has to be physical. And, and her response was, you know, they're saying that it's my body, it's my head because there's nothing wrong with my body. You're saying it's my body because there's nothing wrong with my head. What am I supposed to do? And nobody had any answers, you know? I mean, so that, 
is trauma in and of itself that is very difficult to deal with. And I think that's part of what I try to unpack through an engineering mindset is this dichotomy of, I follow the rules and they led me down a path, which doesn't make any sense. And how is that possible? And what do I do now? So Nicole, talk to us about when you got the diagnosis of late stage, early onset Alzheimer's, and you realized how severe this was with the neurologist, what were the next steps at this point? I, it, it didn't sit with me that, you know, go, you go back to following your gut and it just didn't make any sense. Russ didn't have, he was only 60 at the time. He had his family, no genetic predisposition. I had him tested. I go, went first to the genetics to see if he had any markers that would make him predisposed for Alzheimer's disease. Every single one came back completely negative. Um, he had no comorbidities, so he was extremely healthy. He ate a Mediterranean diet. He exercised all the things that you read about that says, this is what you do to, you know, avoid Alzheimer's. He was already doing all of it. And so it didn't really make any sense. And so I kept doing my research, you know, and tried to look at everything that could be leading to his decline. So, you know, I, we tested his thyroid, we tested for other infectious diseases. I even tested for HIV and syphilis. You know, I say like, talk, talk about not knowing which answer you actually want. Right. <laughs> but, um, that was on the list and, you know, we didn't really come back to Lyme because again, we had that negative answer that said that that wasn't it, but I still knew that there had to be a root cause, but we went and I kept going to neurologist after neurologist after neurologist, but they kept telling me the same thing. And, you know, eventually I, you know, I gave up, you know, I, I think for months we kind of raged against the machine. And after we, you know, finally had gone through every neurologist that had been recommended to us, I, I gave up. So talk to us about Russ's health while you were doing your research. So you're going, and, and how ironic that you come across syphilis as something that could be causing this, which is really the cousin of Lyme with spi another spirochetal uh, bacteria there. But talk to us about Russ's health and how it continued to decline while you were realizing this doesn't sound right in doing your research. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the mood instability got was getting worse. The memory issues were getting worse. It was you know, the, the gradual decline continued, but at that point I was much more in tune to it and I was much more aware of it. And so it was starting to, it, it was seeming like it was everywhere. And I think some of that was because he was declining, but some of it was because I was just much, much more aware and much more noticeable. And so I was starting to like, he had still done a lot of the activities for the kids, but I started pulling back on that and really starting to get help in other aspects and taking care of the family and taking care of the house. Um, he used to do a lot of things around the house that I took for granted, frankly. And then as I took them over one by one, I, you know, I kind of realized the full burden of what was going on in terms of dealing with his illness. So I know you said that you were doing your research and you got to a point where you just sort of realized, you know, you kind of just almost stopped and accepted the, the Alzheimer's diagnosis, but were you seeing any other specialists or getting second opinions while you were doing your own research? We were really just sticking with neurology um, at that point. Um, and I was just going from neurologist to neurologist thinking, okay, this one didn't give me the answers that I wanted. Maybe the next one will. <laughs> and I, you know, and after our fourth neurologist, and I write about this in the book, um, you know, this was the top dementia expert in the area. And, you know, I had written a very comprehensive 
you know, patient history. And I came in with my list of questions and he looked at me and I, I begged him, Russ went out of the room. He got frustrated. He went out of the room to go to the bathroom. And I, I literally begged the doctor. I'm like, there has to be a reason that he is declining. He has no genetic predisposition. He's declining so quickly. Like there has to be a root cause and a reason. And he looked at me and he said, I won't swear, um, but he used a swear word and said, you know, expletive happens. And I was like, really? that's, that's the best that you have to offer me is, you know, this happens like, and I, it was the most crushing moment, I think in our entire, um, experience up until that point, because I just felt hopeless. And that was honestly the moment that I gave up because that was the best he had to offer. And then he's like, okay, you know, have you tried an amenda? You tried Aricept that didn't work. Did you try an amenda? And I just, I still, every time I say that, I feel the sinking feeling in my chest because that's that's what it felt like at the time. I just felt completely hopeless. So Nicole, were all of these other neurologists that you were going to see confirming the initial diagnosis of late stage, early onset Alzheimer's? Yes. And you were being given medication, it sounds like, or drugs to help help a little bit with the process. Were any of these medications or drugs helping at all? No. And in fact, the Aricept made it worse. It gave him massive leg cramps. And so he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming because the cramps were so bad. And so, you know, what's the worst thing you can do to a person with cognitive decline, let them not sleep. <laughs> and so it was actually making it worse. And looking back, were there symptoms that Russ had that were not related in your mind to the Alzheimer's diagnosis? So, yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that at the end, you know, when we were going, that same neurologist that told me, you know, expletive happens, he, um, he was starting to have shoulder pain and, and knee pain and other things. And I said, you know, Hey, he's, he's having the shoulder pain. Like, could that be related to his condition? And, um, you know, he's like, Oh, well, you know, he is older and he's just probably arthritis. Like it's not, it's not anything. And we're like, okay, you know, um, so he was starting because he never had that. He never had joint pain early on, but once we were already well down the path of Alzheimer's, it did start to creep up. At what point did Lyme get brought on the table? Because you sort of gave up and it sounds like Russ's health continued to decline. And I guess before you answer that question, was there anything else that you want to discuss before we get to the Lyme being brought on the table as far as other misdiagnoses or things that happened with, with Russ and you? Yeah, no, I think that there, I mean, we didn't have any other misdiagnosis. It went straight to the Alzheimer's. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's came in January of 2017. And when Lyme came back on the table was later that year. Um, and my brother, it was a phone call from my brother. So his wife had been experiencing her own health issues and she had years of, misdiagnosis and doctor to doctor and, um, her own traumas, which I, I won't go into, but they finally had figured out what was going on. And turns out that she had been diagnosed with Lyme and three co-infections and my brother's a doctor and we have similar personalities. And so he started researching like crazy. And so he called me and said, you know, Hey Nick, I think this is what's going on with Russ. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I thought that too. And I had him tested and it came back negative. And then we talked, you know, he was the one that really just brought back to the forefront, like, Hey, the tests are not 
accurate and you know they're looking for the immune system response you really need to test with different methodologies and, and go to a specialty lab and he you know steered me into a direction he said you really need to get him retested with a method that's looking for the actual organism with a pcr methodology instead of looking with the western blot and that was when we did and that's what we did and we ended up getting him tested and he tested positive for uh borrelia burgdorferi and bartonella hensley so Nicole, obviously you're very smart and your brother's very smart and you didn't realize up until this point that the Lyme testing was flawed, which I think shows a lot that needs to be made more publicly aware and a lot, a lot more awareness needs to be done globally and, and especially here in the States. But I can't help but wonder what research did your brother and you do to connect the, the cognitive decline back to Lyme disease and how can Lyme cause all of the, the cognitive issues that Russell's experiencing? Well, I think when my brother started studying, you know, there is a lot in the research. You just have to go digging for it. So he kind of came across Alan McDonald's work and other, you know, people in the, in the area that had started seeing spirochetes in Alzheimer's plaques and linking, you know, cognitive decline to infection. And so with that, you know, and knowing that Russ was a hunter and he was always doing all the landscaping, it seemed like a natural connection, which again, that was where my brain went first, but the test threw us off the trail. And I was really angry with myself because I had mentioned earlier, I had heard that Lyme diagnostics were good, weren't good, but I didn't really know enough. And again, I just, I'm, a, I'm kind of a rule follower to a certain extent until I don't like the rules and then I have to break them. <laughs> and so, but I wasn't at that point yet. I just, you know, I was deferring to doctors and their advice, because that's what they do. And that's why you go to them. And, and I think now I have a different view about, you know, managing and owning your own health, but that was not something I had at the time. What did you think, you know, as an outsider listening in, as somebody who had no idea about Lyme disease or, or cognitive decline or neuro, neuro, neurological problems, we're looking in and listening to this podcast. Wouldn't it seem that a neurologist should be aware of cognitive decline issues and especially Alzheimer's diagnoses that were really caused by an infection like Lyme disease? It seems like something that should be so obvious and common, but yet it's not. Yeah. I mean, I still as you know, once I became educated and learned, I mean, we would go to world-class institutions that are in my area and I would say it to the neurologist there and they would look at me like I was crazy. And it's just, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I try not to personalize it and, and demonize the doctors because it's the training that they've been through with touched upon in their medical education. I mean, my brother was a doctor too, and he, his wife went through years of suffering before he made the connection either. It's just, it's one of the things that's not talked about and it's not taught. And that becomes, you know, a, a huge barrier for people who are trying to get well. So how did you get the test? Did you go back to the neurologist to get the additional Lyme and co-infection testing, or was it done to you through your brother? You know, how did you proceed to get somebody to finally say, okay, we'll humor you and run this testing for Lyme disease again? Yeah, we just did it on my own, on our own. My brother kind of pointed me in the right direction and then we, we just did it. And that was, so it was completely on our own. The, who did you do it through? Was it Igenix, DNA Connections? What lab did you use to run all this it testing? It was DNA Connections. And what did Russ come back with with those results? So it was uh, it was Brillia Borgdorferi and Bartonella Hensley. And at this point, once these test results came back, it, did you have enough knowledge to realize and have that aha moment that, oh my goodness, all of this is connected to tick-borne illness? 
Yeah. I mean, at that point after, cause it took, you know, several weeks to get the results back. And my brother had kind of pointed me to a lot of the research that he had dug up online and, you know, in the scientific literature. And then I started, and also, as I said, I had been convinced that there was another root cause. I just couldn't find it in any way. And so once I got the results, I felt vindicated, but also angry, you know, at the same time. And cause we had lost so much time. I mean, as I said, he was diagnosed with late stage disease and that's not something that you want to progress. And so I was relieved, angry, um, vindicated, furious, I mean, <laughs> just all those emotions at the same time. Now, did you take these results and bring them back to the neurologist and say, Hey, look, I think you missed a boat here. And there's something we could possibly look at and maybe use another type of treatment to see what happens. No, I mean, I was frankly, after that time with his dismissive comment, I was done with him. <laughs> you know, I, I really just at that point said, I need to know and find somebody who understands Lyme and get treated. And so we, I focused all my energy on finding a Lyme literate doctor in the area and then starting treatment that way. I, I had dreams of going back to that, that same neurologist, you know, he, after Russ had been healed and saying, see, you know, here it is, but you know, it was, uh, it, it's just a different journey. So. So talk to us about your research and what Lyme litter doctor you found and ultimately ended up treating with for Russ. So, um, yeah, I think that I looked at all the different people that I could find in the area and there ended up being a doctor that was very steeped in antibiotic treatment, broad spectrum antibiotic treatment. And that was also kind of a similar methodology that my sister-in-law was going through. And so, but he also did a lot of more holistic management. So in addition to the antibiotics, he also did herbal treatments and immune therapies and, you know, detoxification. So it was really a compilation of a lot of the treatment methodologies that I, you know, had seen out in the literature. And so we went there. I, I had... I looked outside of our area as well and had people that I was interested in, but I knew Russ was still really resistant to care at that point. And so I knew I wasn't going to be able to get him to travel for treatment. And so finding somebody nearby was kind of critical that he could make a connection with and begin to trust. And, you know, we went and I was able, fortunately, to get that kind of connection so that Russ was on board with getting treated. And, you know, our journey went from there. Are you comfortable sharing the name of this Lyme specialist? I changed all the names of the, the doctors in the book, you know, just for, you know, I didn't want to put anybody out there without their consent. So I really don't want to share that. Um, but so we, we, we totally get that. So, <laughs> but talk to us about now, let's go back to Russell's perspective. So when you got the testing back from DNA connections and you realized that you had Borrelia, um, you know, Lyme and you had Bartonella, and you talked to Russ about this, was he able to process and absorb and understand what that meant? Or was he, was he so, you know, so suffering and cognitively impaired that he couldn't understand what was going on? No, I think that he was, he did understand it. And I think it, it did make sense to him because just like with me, the, the Alzheimer's diagnosis didn't make sense for him. And so, you know, it was, immediately a connection of, oh yeah, Lyme disease ticks. That makes sense. You know, I've been bitten by a ton of them. And so that was actually a very easy sell. And it was also because it's something that's treatable. You know, I think 
getting an Alzheimer's diagnosis, there really is no hope offered to you within the medical community. But when it's an infection that's treatable by antibiotics and other methodologies, that becomes a little bit more, you know, easy to process in your brain. And so I think he was relieved, honestly. So now talk to us about treating with the Lyme specialist. What, I guess, you know, talk to us about how that doctor's visit was far different from your, your many neurologists you saw leading up until this doctor. Yeah. I mean, I think just the time that he took with us in really understanding his medical history. I mean, honestly, it was hard for me because Russ couldn't remember a lot of his early stuff. And so I was the one trying to go through that medical history and, and the depth that they went to was really quite different than anything that we had ever experienced. And then I think also the, the lab work that they ran was much more extensive and looking at all aspects of particular infections that he could have of his immune health of ancillary factors that could impact his condition in terms of, you know, looking for gut health and immune system. It was just really an entirely different experience. Even that first integrative practitioner that we went to, she did run a lot of labs, but now in hindsight, I look back and they were still relatively cursory um, and not really looking deeper into what could be causing his illness. Um, and so it was just a much more personal experience. I loved the longer time that, that they took with us. And honestly, it was the first doctor that Russ really felt was trying to help him. Everybody else, he just felt like they were just brushing him off and cataloging him in some odd way. And this was the first experience where they said he walked away feeling calm and feeling like this was a good place to go. And that was huge because up until then, especially with the multiple neurology appointments, he was extremely resistant and he hated every interaction with doctors. So talk to us about the testing. So obviously now you did a lot more testing beyond the DNA connections and you had suspected earlier on maybe some heavy metals because of the, the hobbies that you guys had. Was anything else coming up on the additional lab work done by the Lyme specialists that didn't pop on the DNA connections that you did specifically just for tick-borne illness? Yeah. So in addition to, um, the Lyme and the Bartonella, he also tested positive for antibodies to Babesia denkani. So he had a Babesia infection as well. Um, he did have elevated heavy metals and were much more significant than what had been done with the previous doctor. They actually did a chelation challenge and his levels were through the roof in terms of, uh, you know, the analogs that this doctor had seen with chelated challenges. It was, he said it was one of the worst he had ever seen. Actually. He also had elevated levels of yeast. He had high ferritin. He had low copper. He had, I mean, it was just like his immune system markers were all off. It was like, after having been through almost a year of everybody telling us he was normal and all of his lab work was normal. I remember just feeling completely flooded with information. I couldn't even digest everything that was wrong. It was like lab after lab after lab. That was just a big warning sign. And it was like, where has all this been for the last year? You know, everything was normal and it was, it was completely overwhelming. Do you think all of these things that were popping on the blood work beyond the, the Lyme, the Bartonella and the Babesia were consequences of untreated late stage tick-borne illness? Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of the immune imbalances. I mean, the heavy metals, I think was a you know, compounding factor and separate, but obviously, you know, working together with the Lyme to start doing the cognitive decline and destruction that was going on. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, he had, he had been sick for quite some time and it had really made its mark on his body and how that cascade occurred. I'll, I'll never really know because it, you know, you can't test retrospectively, but yeah, they were definitely all interrelated. So talk to us about a chelation challenge, because a lot of people in the Lyme community suspect heavy metals, and we hear from a lot of Lyme specials that heavy metals can keep you from getting better with proper Lyme treatment. So how did you, what is a, a chelation challenge, and how did you come to the conclusion that Russ was suffering from severe heavy metal toxicity? So that, you know, just stepping back a bit, that first integrative practitioner that we went to did a urine analysis for heavy metals. And he came back as elevated for lead, but it was like, uh, it was low. And it, that was just because that was just a normal urinalysis, you know, challenge. Uh, and that was what came out. But the doctor that we saw really did a lot more work with heavy metals and a chelation challenge is basically where you just put chemicals in to your bloodstream to help pull those metals out. And it's really more of a, of a total body burden assessment of what's going on in your body, because those metals at any point are not free flowing, you know, and kind of making it into your urine. So it's literally just putting in chemical agents that will pull it out. And with that type of challenge, his, his numbers were through the roof, you know, and I think that that's, that's something you have to take lightly because if you do a chelation challenge, you can't compare it to reference ranges of unchelated. So I think some people, some doctors rightfully so say, I don't know what to do with the chelation challenge, because if you compare it to a reference range of non-chelated patients, it's really difficult to compare. But this particular doctor had done enough chelation challenges that his reference range um, was, you know, essentially apples to apples. And it was the most, he said, other than a range officer at Fort Bragg, he had never seen a number of lead higher than what Russ had. And so that was when, you know, I got clued into the fact that that was also a really big issue in his case. So talk to us about why heavy metals can make somebody sick. We hear a lot about it as being really important in the Lyme community, but what about having heavy metals in your body causes you to become so sick and, and in many cases chronically ill? Yeah. I mean, lead in particular, it kind of mimics, you know, other key, you know, key factors in your body and it can really change the way your, you know, cause neurological damage, it gets, it's stored in your bone and it kind of gets released into your bloodstream as your body, you know, your bone remodels itself. So I'm by no means an expert in the space, but it, it wreaks havoc, especially in your neurological, um, aspects. And then Russ was also high in mercury and which has also been linked to cognitive decline. And there's a lot of studies out there linking it to Alzheimer's and it, it impacts your mitochondrial function and your, your detox pathways. It's just, it, it really starts, you know, binding with your normal tissues and making them look, uh, non-biological and it can lead to autoimmune issues and, and all sorts of un, uh, things that you don't want going on in your body. And so that was, you know, a key issue for him. And the reason I'm asking so much about heavy metals is, is it seems like there are a lot of things looking back in your history that I, that doctors need to be more aware of. The mm -hmm. fact that you were bitten by ticks all the time and you, you brought up Lyme disease and people know Lyme and tick one of those can cause co cognitive decline, especially with biofilms in the brain and plaques in the brain that we've learned from Dr. McDonald that have been proven, but yet neurologists still don't know as we talked about. But the other piece of this is based on your husband's hobbies, 
he was exposed to a lot of heavy metals. And we know heavy metal toxicity causes cognitive decline as well. And I just feel like the neurologist missed the boat on two important pieces here, which is tick-borne illness and heavy metal exposure that, you know, hopefully people are going to start to pick up on in the future and not make the same mistakes as other, other people down the road. So um, do you think that these are two things that really looking back should have been blaringly obvious to neurologists? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I don't know why these things have been so hard fought to get awareness in the traditional community, but I think it's time. And that's one of the reasons I'm sharing our story is so that more people can become aware. So if the doctors aren't aware, then maybe the patients can become aware, you know, and hopefully it'll end up being a mix. But um, you know, people need to understand that there's root causes that are out there and you have to find the ones that are specific to you. So let's talk about treatment. So now you, you have all this blood work, you found a Lyme specialist, you're realizing there's a lot going on and you have the sense of hope. What kind of treatment were you, was Russ prescribed? And, you know, what was that like going through the initial, you know, phases of treatment for Lyme and tick-borne illness and heavy metal and everything else going on? So his first phase of treatment was really about his gut. His gut was a mess and he had really elevated levels of yeast. And so they put him on some medications to help stabilize that, you know, he had bacterial overgrowth and other things so that, you know, he, the first phase was that, and that was relatively easy. And then we went on a very broad spectrum course of antibiotics and that was extremely difficult. I mean, his cognitive performance got way worse. He was confused all the time. It, it was, um, it, the irritability was still there, but it was more just confusion. He would, he'd put something down and five minutes later, he would be frantic about where it was. You know, I put my binoculars somewhere and I can't find them. Where are they? they you have to help me. And it was just constant defense all the time, trying to figure out what was going on. And he was still, you know, he didn't have any of the fatigue or other things that, I mean, at some points he did, but for the most part, he was active. So it was like, I felt like I was on 24 seven damage control, trying to go around and, and really keep him occupied and calm and trying to, you know, redirect him constantly. And, um, then after he was on antibiotics for a while, you know, cause it was on a six, it was a six week protocol, I think initially. Um, and he, after a few weeks, he started getting better and he started to stabilize and that behavior went away and his cognitive performance didn't necessarily improve, but he was, he would get more stable and, uh, engaging. And you would kind of see signs of himself a little bit again. And then he would go off antibiotics because it was a pulsed antibiotics protocol. And then all the symptoms would rage back and he would be fatigued. And I mean, it was just, literally a roller coaster of treatment of, you know, cycling through that pulsing for the first several cycles. So why do you think when Russ first started treating with, with this combination of antibiotics and I'm assuming oral antibiotics, correct? Yes, we did oral for, um, one round or was it one or two? I have to go back to my notes. There was so much. Um, but then we eventually did do IV antibiotics as well. We, we were delayed in getting his pick line placed just because of logistical issues. So why do you think when Russ first started the oral antibiotics combination that his cognitive decline got even worse? Do you think that that triggered something in his body to make him even worse than he was? Yeah. I mean, I think he was getting a lot of die off and he was starting the inflammation and, you know, the herxing and so forth was really kicking up. And then, you know, you could see it cycle as he was on it for a longer period that would start to stabilize. And he was on a lot of detoxification along with the protocol to kind of help it clear from his body. And, um, then he would do better. 
And then when he went off antibiotics, it would flare again. It was like the bugs would wake up and he would come back and he would start feeling, um, you know, sick again. So it was really just a, a roller coaster, as I said. When you say sick again, do you mean non-cognitive symptoms? Are you referring to cognitive symptoms as well, meaning that he'd improve a little bit, you know, brain-wise, and then he'd, he'd decline? Or are we, are we talking strictly non-cognitive symptoms? Yeah, I, I think cognitive, and he was also having fatigue at the time, so he would really get tired and be sleeping and um, you know, he would start ha- the joint pain that he was having was becoming really severe at that time. Like at one point he couldn't lift his arms over his shoulders. So I had to help him put on his shirt. And so like the, you know, later in the course of antibiotics, that joint pain would go away and he would feel pretty good. And he'd be out, you know, power washing the driveway and mowing the lawn and doing things. But then when he would go off the antibiotics, all of those symptoms would come back. And, um, and then he would just the fatigue and the joint pain would kind of rush back in. So give us an example of a cognitive improvement that Russ made while on antibiotic treatment. And, you know, a memory you have of, of thinking, wow, he's got a little bit better here. Yeah, I think that um, there, in terms of his his cognitive performance, it was really up and down. It's hard to say one particular day. Um, I, I think that there was a moment when he started to solve problems again. Like you know, he was always an entrepreneur, and he was always a a problem solver because he was an engineer. And as he really started to feel better, he, we started brainstorming ideas of startups that we could do in order to help solve this problem. You know, he's like, how do we eradicate ticks from the world? And how do we do that? And he just, he just started going down that path of like, I'm going to help solve this and I'm going to, you know, do something that is meaningful out of this experience. And that was more the person that I knew. And I I never got to the point where he had the capabilities that he did, but I could see those thought processes coming back. And that was, you know, hopeful. Um, I think another thing that I realized was really important in his treatment was he actually, the mood instability I I talked about in the book, I, I gave him ketones. Um, and that was a moment where it's like his brain was starving for fuel. And as soon as I gave him ketones, which is an alternate form of fuel from glucose, he, he totally changed his mood changed in like 10 minutes. Well, maybe a little bit more than that, but, um, he totally turned around and he, he went from raging and nasty to sweet and engaging and loving. And, and that was a moment when I thought, oh my gosh, we are all big balls of biochemistry reactions. Like what is going on? in this, you know, in his brain that even just taking a drink of exogenous ketones can have that massive transformation so quickly. And so the, you know, there were just, there were moments where it's over and over again, linking his behavior to what was going on in his body that again, it was like a baseball bat, you know, that it's like, how did I not see this sooner? So walk us through the transition, uh, you know, I think you said it was uh, many, many weeks before you can get the pick line put in, but when you pivoted from oral antibiotics, to IV antibiotics, was there an even more positive improvement in your, in your husband's health at that time? So the, the IV antibiotics were really in addition to the oral antibiotics. So he was doing both at the same time. Um, so it wasn't like a transition. It was more of an addition. And to be honest, I, I don't, I'd have to really look back into my notes to answer that question in terms of like a, a trigger point. Um, I I don't think that the IV antibiotics were a major turning point. I think the turning points that I really see 
were more on the when we started treating the Bartonella, um, that was a big turning point that I saw where we just out of happenstance, we ran out of uh, rifabutin, which was really looking and targeting the Bartonella. And within a day of just being off that one antibiotic, which he was on like seven others, but you know, we missed that one and he, all of his symptoms came back. He started getting back pain. He started getting actually urinary incontinence, which was new. He started getting, um, you know, joint pain and irritability and just nasty. And so, you know, I, I noticed more inflection points with that than I did when he went on the IV antibiotics, to be honest. It's interesting you bring that up because we recently interviewed Colonel Nicole Malakowski, who told us she treated her tick-borne one at a time in a very strategic way. And when she got to Bartonella is when she saw the biggest improvement with her mental health, specifically with her mood stability, her depression, her anxiety, and also some physical symptoms. And it sounds like Russ had the same thing that when you stopped treating the Bartonella, if you ran out of that medication, then you saw a noticeable change in your husband's health. Yes. I mean, it was, it was stark. And, and like I said, I'm, I, one of the things that I did in order to get through this is I was really maniacal about writing down symptoms and writing down everything that he was taking and trying to decode it because it was such a high stress environment that I couldn't do it based upon my memory. Um, I was having a lot of stress and brain fog just from the stress of, and you know, itself. And so I wrote everything down and, uh, you know, when he went off the right rifibutin, it was so stark that I talked about it with the doctor and he suggested that we go on an herbal tincture. It was actually a beyond balance herbal tincture, um, that he recommended. And, I just didn't see Russ at this point was on buckets of pills. I mean, and when I say buckets, I literally mean buckets (laughs) of pills and I I just didn't see it. I'm like one drop of this thing is going to make a difference, but I gave him one drop of this herbal formula targeting in Bartonella. And the next morning he woke up and all the symptoms were there. Same thing as when he went off the rifibutin. And um, again, I'm like, like to verify results when I see a data point. And so I would stop and the symptoms would subside and then I'd give it to him again. And same thing. Like it was just, it was unbelievably correlated and I couldn't believe it because I'm like, he's on a bucket of pills, but yet one drop of this little tincture is going to make such an impact in his behavior. But I reproduced it again and again. And that was when I really had the understanding of Bartonella and the impact that it was having, because I absolutely attribute a lot of his anxiety, a lot of the rage, the mood instability, all of that was exacerbated when we were specifically targeting the Bartonella. And I really became uh, more in tune to that as just as important as the Lyme. I think Lyme gets all the headlines, but Bartonella is nasty. (laughs) And it, and I think it has a lot more implications in mental health than people realize. So when you say rifibutin, is that the same as rifampin? Because we've heard a lot of people use rifampin to treat Bartonella. Is that the same thing or are they different? I can't speak, you know, chemically, but I believe that they are the same or similar, but I, I, I don't know that for a fact. That was just what my doctor chose to target the Bartonella. And that, that was the same drug that Colonel Malakowski used as well. But it's interesting because we often hear that Bartonella can be treated with doxy just like Lyme. But in, it sounds like in your case and also in Colonel Malakowski's case, the doxy for Lyme wasn't enough to really treat the Bartonella. And it wasn't until you got a more targeted treatment, like, you know, some, some other antibiotics that really allowed you to be able to effectively treat the Bartonella. So would you agree that the, the traditional Lyme treatment wasn't really necessarily helpful for treating Bartonella? It's hard to make that statement definitively because it, you know, he wasn't, um, 
on a step-by-step protocol like Colonel Malakowski was, that was a fabulous podcast interview. Um, and she's amazing. Um, it was, he was on it all at once, you know, and he was on doxycycline at the, at the same time. The only way by happenstance that I realized the importance of the rifabutin was because we ran out of it. And then all of a sudden the next day, even though nothing else changed, I mean, he was literally on seven other antibiotics and all of his detox and all of his immune support and so forth. It was just that one little pill and everything flared. I mean, to the point where it was almost unbearable. And that really was the first clue to me as to how big of a factor the Bartonella was in his case. What I find interesting is that it sounds like the herbal tincture was even stronger than the rifampin or the rifibutin. Is, is that a proper takeaway that I'm walking away with here? It had a huge impact on him. I mean, it really did. And we had to step off to the point where we started with a quarter of a drop. I mean, I, again, as, as an engineer, I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. How can such a small amount of something be so powerful? But again and again, I tried it. And, and every time he would have the same reaction to, you know, to treatment. And so it was definitely having a strong impact on his, his capabilities and his behavior. Do you remember the name of that tincture? I think you said it was beyond something. Beyond balance bar one. Yeah. Beyond balance bar one. Yeah. one. So talk to us about now about how long were, were you and your husband working with this Lyme litter doctor and using this protocol and, you know, give us, give us an assessment of time and also your husband's health and the, the ups and downs throughout the time period he was treating with the Lyme specialist. So we, you know, we started in the, at the beginning of 2018 and he was on hardcore antibiotics protocol for a little over six months. Um, you know, and we had lots of ups and downs, I think with the antibiotics, we also did, um, uh, stem cell therapy. And that actually had a very positive impact. And I started seeing moods, you know, a lot of his, um, his traditional self come back, you know, and his thinking and capabilities. Um, but at the six to seven month point, he started to decline again, and he was really starting to be fatigued and having lots of issues. And he also, um, that was when he started the hallucinations. Um, and I actually attribute that right or wrong. It's all observational, but to the chelation. So in the heavy metals. So after his chelation treatments, he would get very agitated and very nasty. And, and then one day he started seeing things in the woods, as I referred to earlier. And so he, um, he, that was seemed to be correlated to the chelation and he started hallucinating when we really got into a dark place. And I started alternate forms of, you know, of treatment. We actually switched, switched doctors teams and went to a, a more targeted approach with less antibiotics and more immune support. So he did have, still was on an antibiotic protocol, but he was, it was a little bit more targeted and he was also on immune modulation and, uh, herbals and other things that were helped to treat the disease, but he was starting, his decline was really progressing at that point. You made a connection between the heavy metals and the chelation and the hallucinations. Do you think that's because when you were treating the heavy metals, it was bringing them out and provoking them to come out into the body and that was causing the hallucinations? Is that the connection that you made? That's what I can infer. I mean, based upon we would, they were, I used to call them thrilling Thursdays because Thursdays were chelation days. And after that Thursday afternoons, and then even Fridays were just 
uh, that was the times when he threw things and the very few times where he got really nasty and would actually throw things across the room. And then that the first Friday we were sitting out on the back deck and he, he would see something in the woods and he thought it was a sniper that was trying to kill us. And, um, you know, so the, that was when the hallucination started. So I attribute that to the chelation just because of the timing. Um, but whether I can be definitively sure of that, you know, who knows, but, um, was Russ also taking binders at this time? So obviously when you bring out the heavy metals, you're taking binders to kind of take, you know, attract them and, and collect them and then help you, your body detox them and, and purge them. So I'm assuming he was taking binders as well. And he still was this sick and getting and getting hallucinations. Yeah. So he was, he was taking binders. He was taking natural chelators as well as the chemical chelators and as much as he could to expel the metals, you know, from his body. But, um, you know, we were still seeing challenges. And like I said, those chelation days, I ended up hating them and, <laughs> and not wanting to do them. So it became a challenge. And, and the second team of doctors, they were, I, I still, people ask me what to do about heavy metals. And I really honestly don't have a great answer because the first set of doctors said, you have to do it and you have to get it out. The next set of doctors said, it's better to leave it alone and, and try and treat other parts of the disease because you can stir up, um, and, and make, you know, take something that's embedded in tissue and stir it up and put it into a healthy set of tissue. And I wish I had a better answer on that. Um, but in Russ's case, I, I do believe it actually made him worse. So talk to us more about stem cells. I think you said that you also use stem cells later on in, in Russ's journey as well. Yeah. So that was a treatment as we started looking into more ways to boost your immune system and natural healing. We looked at actually using uh, stem cells from umbilical cords, you know, uh, which would go in and they have a lot of growth factors as well as stem cells that can help stimulate your natural healing. And my sister-in-law had been through it and she saw fabulous results. And then also Russ, we decided to try it with him and see how it went. And we definitely saw an impact. So the first several, it was about 11 days, I believe, um, he was, he was a little bit more fatigued and I describe it as a little bit more zombie-like where he was just kind of seemed out of it. But after those 11 days, he, that was some of the closest that I got to the, you know, the real him. And he really started to perk back up. He, um, was engaging with the kids. His mood was more stable. And I started becoming really hopeful of like, Hey, we can repeal, we can rebuild, we can repair and really kind of get back on the track of getting him to who he is. And we did, um, several treatments over the course of his treat, you know, his journey. And every time we saw a little bit of a boost, and with the stem cells, you had that, that boost. It sounds like a really strong boost after the 11 days. Did, did that eventually subside or was that a sustainable improvement in his cognitive abilities? In, in his case, it, it did end up declining. I think it would last for a few, you know, a little bit, and then we would do it again and it would go. But I, I kind of, you know, liken some of his treatment, it was like there was a fire, you know, and we were trying to put the fire out. And in some cases we would quench a big portion of it, but then it would come back, you know, and that's kind of what it felt like with the stem cell treatment. It would be quenching, but it would eventually start coming back. And, um, it was, uh, I think for, for some, it, it could be completely restorative, but for him, it felt like we could never quite get ahead of, of the fire and fully extinguish, you know? So before I hand this back over to Rich, are there any other treatments or things you did with your Lyme specialist that you want to share with our audience that you either found to be helpful or not so much helpful, specifically in Russ's case? 
I think the, I think the ketones, at least in his case, were one of the biggest things. And I touched upon that, but I really want to echo it because that was a moment that really allowed me to transform my experience with him as a caregiver. Before then he was very irritable. He was, he was nasty. He was volatile, anxious. Um, and then once we started giving him ketones regularly, his behavior stabilized, he became sweet, loving, like more the personality of the man that I married. It was like his brain was starving for fuel. And once we could finally give it in the form of ketones, he was a much happier, more engaged person. And I really wish that we had done that sooner. Um, there's a lot of literature on ketones and, and ketosis in the Alzheimer's community. Um, and but, and it was something that I researched very early on, but once we pinpointed on Lyme, I had kind of put it to the wayside and we came back to it later. And I really wish it did something we had done consistently throughout. Nicole, when I read your book, I read your book as a dad. And very much like when I read Ali Hilfiger's book, um, Bite Me, um, I found myself stepping into her dad's shoes and listening and watching all of these events as a father. And I kept wondering about how Ryan and Haley were doing during the course of this journey. And so can you talk to us about how um, your, your husband's challenges and your family's challenges were affecting your children? Oh, yeah, I get emotional even thinking about it. I mean, it was difficult because he was, as I have described, volatile and you know, he was also very noise sensitive. So uh, any noise and trigger would send him into a little bit of a rage and kids are loud, <laughs> you know, especially I have a little boy and a little girl and they were always fighting. And so we had to adjust our behavior and I had to kind of shuttle them away from him when he would get angry or when he would have an, a mood and we would kind of talk off into the bedroom and watch TV or we'd go up to their rooms and we'd play there. I couldn't have play dates at our house because I didn't want to invite friends over, not knowing exactly how Russ would respond. Um, and then I think, you know, Ryan was at least able to experience who his real dad was, you know, he, he knew him, he had had some moments with him. I think Haley was younger and she was often the trigger because what would happen is the two of them would fight. She's the younger one. She would lose, she would cry. Right. And so she was the one making the noise. And so Russ would take out a lot of his anger and that mood instability on her. And so it was really difficult. You know, we were constantly walking on eggshells and, and trying to navigate. And it was really difficult. And then later in his journey, it became, I was having to give him full-time care and I couldn't, I couldn't even spend any time with them because they were not able to really have the relationship with him that they could, but I was also being taken away because all of my energy was focused on, on Russ. And so it was really difficult. And at the end of the day, you know, you know, moving, I ended up placing him in a resident care facility. And I did that decision primarily for the kids. I mean, I think if it was just me, I would have, I would have not made that decision as soon as I did, but I had to for them because it was just becoming really difficult to live in that environment. What type of protections did you put in place for your children? Meaning, uh, did you, were you able to find a, either therapists or a therapeutic environment so you can help your children manage these challenges when they were, when they were going on? Not at the time, just because I didn't even have the ability to 
get to a therapist. I was doing so much work just trying to survive. I think, you know, subsequently after, you know, now I have those vehicles in place for me, it was really just a lot of talking to them. You know, I would have those moments when I did have a, you know, a moment to sit down, especially with my son, because he was older and he was really uh, able to communicate it more. I was just really open and honest with him, trying not to share the burden of being a caregiver, but also trying to make him know that it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to experience confusion and anger and emotions. It's just not okay to take those emotions out on other people. Like, you know, sometimes he witnessed his dad do, you know, I, I wanted him to to teach him that it wasn't who his dad was. It was just the illness. And so he needed to understand right from wrong and not model that behavior. And I tried to be an example of that, but as my stress got harder, that became, you know, more and more difficult as well. So it was really challenging. I'm actually thankful that they were pretty young at the time, because I don't think that they fully processed a lot of what they experienced and witnessed. So Nicole, let's talk about the extended family um, that you had supporting you. Uh, one of the things I thought was really beautiful about the book is how your relationship with your mom changed mm -hmm. and how your relationship with your brother changed, right? And, and in fact, in the book, you said that you and your brother weren't particularly close until his wife went on her journey and your husband went on his journey. And then you started to connect with him on a regular basis. So talk to us about the beautiful elements of, uh, of this journey and how it allowed you to be closer with both your mother, who you began to speak to every day, and you were able to share uh, the challenges that you were you were dealing with with Russ and your brother. Yeah, I think that my brother was the biggest silver lining because he's he's six and a half years older than I am, and so growing up we were never really close. I was just kind of the snot nosed kid that he used to pick on, and then he was so much older and off to college, and I was kind of an only child, you know, because he was off doing his own thing, and. Um, we lived in different parts of the country. So we saw each other a couple of times a year for holidays, but we weren't super close. But as we were both experiencing the same thing, both as caregivers and as, you know, scientists kind of trying to figure out what was going on, we had so much in common. It was like, he was the only one that really understood what I was going through. And so every morning, you know, not every morning, every morning I talked to my mom, every week I would talk to my brother and I kind of described it as journal club and therapy, like in one phone call, because, you know, he understood the this, the frustration of trying to pick apart this complex landscape of tick-borne illness and all of the debate that was lurking within that community and, and within that in the medical community. But he also just understood the emotional stress of dealing with the spouse and trying to maintain your family and, and working and, and managing. And so we really became a lot closer through that process, which was fabulous. And then I think my mom and I were always close other than when I was frankly, just not so nice as a teenager. <laughs> I went through those typical teenage years. We've always been close, but I think that I'm a person that likes to solve problems on my own. I'm not a big sharer, which is really funny because I just wrote a book about like the biggest depths of my horrible experience. But, um, I'm a person that likes to process and then share which is, I guess what I did with the book, you know, um, but learning how to share real time with my mom and being open to the emotions I was experiencing at that moment was something that honestly, I had only really experienced with Russ. I mean, he was the only person that really I had engaged with on that level. And even friends, I was still somewhat guarded with in terms of how I share. I'm a pretty open and straightforward person, but 
Um, I don't like to hide things, but I like to process and then share. And it really became a, a skill that I've learned to be able to share with other people as I'm going through it. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book or, or was really moving for me is when, and I don't remember what you called it. It was like a silver alert moment. When your mother had seen the silver alert moment, it allowed you to then finally begin to share with her what was happening. So well, you go into this process of, I guess, processing on your own and you were keeping it from your mom, it was painful. And having the ability to then share with her in real time really changed uh, I guess the emotional landscape for you, not just a processing landscape, but the emotional landscape, because you could now share this really painful moment with your mom and allow you to go through this together. So I, I thought that was a really beautiful part of your book. And I really enjoyed uh, the way you shared that. So now, Nicole, I, I've been really looking forward to this interview for quite some time. And part of the reason why I wanted to, wanted to talk with you is I wanted to challenge you on some of the conclusions that you had come to about the medical community. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you know one of, the, one of the things I really enjoyed about your, your story is that, of course, the diagnosis came from your interaction with your brother, right? And you know, we, we talk all the time on this podcast about bro science and sister science. And, and, and the reason we use those terms, and the bro science uh, term used to come from, um, from uh, the gym community when I was a young man, uh, we would have all these guys who were working out in the gym and they would give you uh, advice about uh, about fitness and knew very little about what we used to call it bro science. And then we started doing this podcast. Most of the women we were talking to um, would talk about how their diagnosis came from some friend who was observing these, um, you know, these very traditional Lyme symptoms that the doctors were ignoring, right? But in your case, you had a brother who was a doctor. So we had bro science and, and, and we had traditional science coming together with your diagnosis. So let's talk about why your brother, who was traditionally trained, was able to assist you in diagnosing your husband's illness when the rest of his community was not. And your argument, I think, in some way is mirroring most of what, what we're hearing in our, um, our community is that we're sort of defending doctors by saying, hey, they're not trained to see these things. They're not getting this training in medical school. Um, and I'd like to challenge you on that. Do you think that's really true? That the reason these guys and gals and folks uh, are not able to diagnose Lyme disease is because they're not being properly trained or is there something else going on? Well, I think that's part of it. I also think that the message that is out there is, you know, established PC and other folks that are supposedly experts is that chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. And that's the challenge. And so it's not even that they're not trained. It's that it's actually negatively taught the other, you know, in the other sense, it's like, Hey, this isn't actually science. This is just quackery. And I don't believe that you know, to the least bit. Right. And so it's the same within neurological conditions, you know, for years, the dogma has been that amyloid beta is the evil actor, but recent research has shown that amyloid beta is actually, you know, potentially part of the innate immune system, protecting the brain from these infections that are, you know, infiltrating and into and causing neurodegenerative decline. So I think that there's a long history in the medical community of beliefs and several times in that, in that history, the beliefs have been proven wrong. And the people that first bring them to the table are treated, you know, negatively. And, you know, some have gone, their careers have suffered and so forth, but eventually science comes out. And I think that that's where we are with 
with tick-borne illnesses is I think that the truth is coming out and won't be denied. But I, I think that the dogma is telling people the wrong information, you know, and okay. I've, yeah. So, let's and that, that has that. to let's, be overcome. Let's, let's stay with the dogma, right? So, so one of the things that we've done is we've explored a lot of these issues with some of the Lyme pioneers, for example, uh, Joseph Bioscano, who was a Long Islander uh, and who had a lot of challenges in his career in the late seventies and early eighties. We're talking about, you know, when I graduated from high school and I'm an old man, right? We had, we had Alan McDonald again in the late seventies and the early eighties, uh, working as a pathologist and making, you know, as a doctor's doctor, making observations and trying to publish his findings, right? So we, we, have, we have folks who were making observations, traditionally trained doctors, making observations in their clinical practices that are now being borne out to be accurate, but weren't available to people like you and your brother who were doing research um, you know, as recently as, you know, as, as 10 years ago. So we have this construct of researchers who are, who are, who are making their findings and publishing their findings in scholarly journals. And then we have clinicians who are supposed to be scientists using the scientific method and evaluating the, the rules, I'll use your term, or the, or, the, or the frameworks that are available in either their education or in the literature. And then what the clinicians are supposed to be doing is determining whether or not those rules or those frameworks apply to their patients or whether or not their patients are outliers. They're outside of the curve. And then they're supposed to be treating them consistent with the observations they're making in a clinical setting, right? Yep. Now, that's what they're all trained to do. They're trained to, they're trained to look for the outliers and treat the outliers. That's what jo Joseph Bioscano did in the 70s and the 80s. And he made all kinds of discoveries that were unique and were not a part of the, of the construct that he was taught in, in medical school. And it was not a part of the medical literature, but he was still properly treating his patients mm -hmm. in the 70s and the 80s. Dr. Alan McDonald, exactly the same thing. He was, he, was, he was not trained in medical school with any of these frameworks. He was not observing any of these frameworks in the medical literature that he was studying at the time, but he was looking at the outliers and he was able to make observations that were, were allowing him and the doctors that he was consulting with to treat their patients properly. Yet they were punished. Yeah. And they were attacked. Yep. And it didn't become a part of it. Alan McDonald shared with us on his podcast that, uh, that Dr. Steer, Alan Steer, actually accused him of doctoring his data and prevented his information from being uh, published in any of the leading medical journals. Recently, that's changed. But for 30 years, his findings, which are 30 years old, were not published in any of the any of the um, journals. So they weren't available to doctors who wanted to make inquiries and they weren't available to patients who wanted to make inquiries. So let's talk about that process. Not that uh, Western doctors are not trained properly because I believe they are trained properly. I believe they can in a clinical setting, make the observations and make the, uh, you know, and ultimately come up with treatments. They're trained properly, but they're not allowed to practice properly. They're not allowed to treat properly. So talk to me about that and how that you, how you believe that may have affected your husband's capacity to be treated um, properly and ultimately uh, brought to remission. 
Well, I mean, I think if you go into the traditional model, they're not given enough time, you know, what's reimbursed and what is encouraged is a 15 minute appointment where you exit with a prescription. And that's just not a model that's conducive to chronic illness, tick-borne illness, or any other kind of chronic illness. And so I think that the framework is broken, you know, in terms of giving the, the doctor, they may have the training or they may even have the knowledge to fully dig in and figure out what is wrong. But if you don't have the time to dig in and to really understand what's going on at a level, I mean, we spent hours and hours and hours with doctors. And then I spent on top of that hours researching, and I still don't think I have all the answers to, you know, what impacted Russ's case. So, Nicole, let's stay there, right? So yeah. one of the reasons why Matt in every one of our podcast interviews asks our guests, what was the difference between seeing your traditional doctors, in your case, the neurologist, and your Lyme literate medical doctors? And every one of you tells us one of the major differences is the amount of time the doctor spends with you, right? Yes. The, 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 the amount of time, the type of, uh, of, of, of exams, the types of testing that's being done, that's the big difference between LLMDs and, and, and regular doctors. And your case is the same, right? So is it really the training of the doctors? Is it really the training of the neurologist? Or is it the, uh, the industrial medical complexes limitations that are that are placed on these properly trained doctors. Because look, I don't believe that Eastern doctors are better trained than Western doctors. I disagree with that. I think Western doctors are properly trained, but they're not allowed to be doctors. They're not allowed to be clinicians and they're not allowed to do the work that their training would permit them to do in order to be able to properly treat us, right? So I'm disagreeing with the construct that keeps coming out of the, you know, out of the Lyme world. I think our doctors are properly trained. I think what's happening is that the medical system, I'm sorry, the insurance system is punishing the doctors who are trying to do the right thing. And the first thing that you just identified for us is they don't get paid. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I absolutely agree with that. I think the model is broken. And I think that you need to spend the time. And unfortunately, in terms of, you know, the patient, to get that time, you end up having to pay out of pocket because it's not covered by insurance. And that by definition limits the amount of people who can actually have access to, you know, the care that they're going to need in order to get better. So and that's talk, a huge challenge. So Nicole, let's talk about the insurances. One, one of our guests, John Tubbs, uh, who uh, Matt referenced earlier, actually put it on our radar that the insurance system is actually bad for us. And he argues because so many of our patients are, uh, I mean, so many of our, our, our podcast guests are desperate to get everything covered by insurance. But here's the problem. When it's covered by insurance, two things happen. One of the things that John pointed out to us is that our expectations are lowered. Our demands for our doctors are lowered because we're not paying them. Therefore, we don't believe that we're entitled to the same level of care. So that's the first problem. But the second problem, of course, is they're now going to manage our care. The managed care system that was that was celebrated during you know Hillary Clinton's uh, efforts during Bill Clinton's presidency has actually turned out to be a horrific thing for both doctors and patients because doctors are now not allowed to use their clinical skills to determine whether or not the frameworks that they that they were taught or the frameworks that are available to them in the medical literature is 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 going to be proper when determining how to treat me as an individual, whether or not I'm an outlier, right? So, so the first thing that insurance is doing is that it's, it's lowering our expectations of the level of care that we believe we're entitled to. But the second thing that it's doing is it's limiting the doctor's ability to use their training to treat us. 
Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not an expert on the healthcare system. I'm just a consumer of it. And I would say that the time is a huge issue. The reimbursement is a huge issue and it's preventing people from getting well. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental issue. I, I think that my experience with traditional neurology was not that they were trying to help us. It was that they were just cataloging our decline. I mean, that was it. That's all they had to offer was, I mean, it was literally come back in six months and we'll see where he is and try this prescription that might help. And I, I remember venting to the time to a friend of mine and she's a surgeon. And I was like, surgeons are the only ones that can actually fix problems, <laughs> you know? And it's, of course, that's, that's a whole hearted statement. That's not, you know, completely true, but it was, it was that frustrating because in the neurology space, at least in dementia, it was just, here's how much you've declined since your last appointment. We'll see you again. All right. So let's talk about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have Dr. Alan McDonald, who's finally in, you know, 2021 been able to get his findings from the early eighties published in a major medical journal. And when we interviewed him, we said, I asked him the question, why weren't you able to get it published then? And he said, well, none of the major medical journals would publish it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because they're political institutions, they have boards of people who have philosophies and what they do is they publish more of what they like and they prevent us from publishing the things that they don't like. Well, where, yeah. where there's a narrative that's consistent with what, they're, what, what, um, you know, what they believe, they allow it to be published and, the, and they don't allow it. So they don't allow things that do not fit their narrative, narrative or their political bent. And, and Alan Steer at the time was in control of all the journals. So... Alan McDonald was not able to publish um, yeah. publish his findings. Now, I want to ask you for your reaction because uh, your husband is suffering and was suffering and is now ultimately in a place where he's no longer capable of functioning at a high level because of uh, because of Lyme disease and those and the illness that he's suffering from could have been a standard of care and could have been available to neurologists and those who are trained in neurology. In the early 80s, if Dr. McDonald's findings were not blocked from, from, yeah. from medical literature. So what is your reaction to that? I mean, other than it's heartbreaking, I would add that, you know, as an engineer, I would like to think that science is always about, you know, getting to the right answer, you know, and, and so, but the reality is, is that science is established as a debate right? You have lots of different evidence that comes up in different aspects and different parts. And the whole system is set up as to, you know, a dialogue of this is what I found. And this is what I think it means. And then somebody else will come and attack it and say, well, this is actually what I think it means. And I think you're wrong. And this is, you know, and then it's a whole community and everybody shares their knowledge. And then eventually you, in theory, get to the right answer. And I think as a, purist. And as an engineer, I would like to think that that is a, a completely healthy and objective process, but okay, the reality- stop there for a second. When does okay. the debate stop, Nicole? See the, see the problem is, you know, again, you kept calling yourself a rule follower, right? Yep. And, and, you know, and, and unfortunately I think we have, I think, um, I think medicine has become a rule-based system, right? Yep. And what we do is we, we come to rules and at some point we say debates over, this is the standard of care and everybody has to follow the standard of care. And anybody who wants to treat their patient outside of that standard of care, even if that patient is an outlier, gets punished. They yep. don't get paid. 
They, they ultimately have to face medical boards. So the, so the question is, A, when does the debate stop? Why are we continuing to debate and, and continue to change the, the standard of care? Because we're not. And secondly, why are we punishing the people who are trying to properly treat the outliers so that they can get treatment as well when they, when they don't fit within the, you know, the standard of care that the bell-shaped curve ultimately comes to where debate has come to a stop? Well, I mean, the best answer would be that the debate doesn't stop because we're constantly getting better answers for the patients because we're constantly learning and human beings are very complex systems. Going back to the systems-based approach to, you know, medical treatment, we're just beginning to understand the interactions between, you know, genes and environmental factors and the microbiome, and none of that's going to be settled. And the fact that we make a definitive standard of care that is enforced in a very negative way in some cases is a problem. I mean, I hundred percent think that that's a challenge because we need to challenge the dogma and we need to do that, but it is difficult when you're trying to treat patients and the life and death is on the line. So it's an extremely complex landscape that, um, unfortunately is littered with politics as Dr. Alan McDonald said, and, and even just as an engineer who's been in science, and I've seen that in submitting to journals that, you know, who's the, on the committee establishes what gets published and what doesn't, it's just there, everybody's a peop, you know, their people and their systems, and it's not perfect, but seeing it in life and death scenarios is really heartbreaking because it's prevented people from getting the care that they need. And that literally is changing, you know, families, you know, one at a time, uh, you know, in the, in the order of millions and that's unfortunate. And so I think that the more that we step up as patients and say, no, it's not enough. I mean, I'm a, I like to solve problems. And the answer is how do you solve this really complex landscape that is in front of us? And I, I don't know the answer to that question yet, but I think that the place that it starts is with patients say, no, this isn't good enough. And I'm sorry, but I don't accept your answer. And I'm going to find a different doctor and I'm going to own my own care. And I'm going to figure out what's wrong with me and stop listening to doctors as these all-knowing soothsayers and more as it, I think Dr. Rawls says this in some of his, his work is think of doctors more as an advisor, you know, who's giving you information. I mean, the analog I would use with my engineers was they would always be nervous about board meetings when we would have the board come in. And I would say, you know, if a board member can come in and they've only spent, you know, a couple of hours every three months listening to what you're doing with your business, how can they be giving you all the advice in order to steer the direction of the company, you know what you're doing as a business and you have to make those decisions. And I think the same thing applies with patient care. You know your body and you know what's going on and you know when something is right. And it's time that you start listening to that and really start owning your own care and demanding better. So, Nicole, so let's now define the relationship uh, before we move on between patients and doctors, right? Because what the relationship that we want with our doctors is we want our doctors to be able to diagnose us and make us better, give us the pill to get better, right? And, and, and the way doctors are trained to interface with us is that doctors are trained to tell us, hey, I'm going to take care of you and that's my job and I will come up with a diagnosis and I'll make you better. 
But the truth is that's a lie, right? Yeah. That the that the doctor riding in on his or her or their white horse is just an absolute fallacy, that they do not have the ability to diagnose us and treat us. And that what we really need to do is recognize that we have to be responsible for our own care. We have to decide um, you know, what frameworks we're accepting that the doctor is giving to us and what frameworks we're not. And we have to decide how we're gonna build a team of people who are gonna help us to get better. But in the end, we have to be responsible for our own care meaning respond with ability. And that's the only way that we're going to get better, right? Yeah. I mean, I completely changed the way that I interacted, you know, with doctors as part of this process. I think when I first started, I walked in and would say, you know, responding to their questions, basically being more reactive, expecting them to know which questions to ask and to know what was right. And then I was just there to provide information. I don't do that anymore. Now, when I go in, I've kind of done my research. I have a write-up. I mean, the doctors that I work with now, they know that two or three days before my appointment, they're going to get an email from me with all of my observations and with all of the questions that I would like to cover during the appointment. And you would think that, I think if I had done that years ago with the doctor, I would have been very um, nervous about that, you know, like, oh, well, I'm, I'm owning this and I'm going to steer this dis discussion. But what I've actually found is that doctors, at least the right kind of doctors are very receptive to it because yeah. they can't assimilate and, and gather all that information. If you lay it out in a way that is, you know, thoughtful and tells you what their problems in and exactly what they can help you with, they actually really appreciate it. And then you can take that appointment, which is still, even with a functional medicine doctor who spends time with you, it's still going to be like an hour, an hour and a half, which is really not a lot of time to figure out these complex issues, but it's a great way to maximize, um, you know, that time so that they can really help you in their best of their abilities. But Nicole, another thing we're not ready for as patients is how much work we're going to have to do in order to be able to get better, right? We're set up to believe that we don't feel well, we make a phone call, we see a doctor, we get better, right? And that's yep. not what it is. And you know, the first time I went to a competent doctor in my life, and I'm 58 years old, was two years ago when I suffered a tick bite and I, and I, had, a, um, I had a consult with Dr. Casey Kelly, who's a, a medical doctor, uh, an integrated medical doctor, but of course, someone who, who treats in the Lyme community, right? She, before I, I had my, my appointment with Dr. Kelly, I had to spend an hour and a half on her website putting information into a portal, which I've yep. never done in my life. Yep. An hour and a half just to get the appointment. Then I spent an hour with Dr. Kelly where she was going through the information on the portal and she was getting information from me and we were now integrating that information. And then I had two hours of work after I finished that appointment. Yeah. I had never in my life expected that I'd have to spend four hours to deal with, by the way, I wasn't even acutely, acutely I can't say that word ill at the time. I just suffered a tick bite, right? So yep. the so the relationship with a competent doctor is very different than anything I'd ever experienced in my entire life. So we have to take responsibility for our own care, but we have to be prepared to take responsibility for our own care rather than having this expectation that the you know the industrial medical industry has has imposed upon us which is I feel badly I make a phone call I see a doctor I get better. That's not going to work. It's never worked and it's never going to work and um, I'll get off that rant now because uh, it is it is just something that I think is really sad um, and 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 unfortunately your family has had a very terrible experience because of the failures of the research community, the publishing community, the, the community of people who are setting, setting standards of care, and then of course clinicians not being able to to serve as clinicians. So let's let's move forward, Nicole, to uh, 
to your recommendations based on your experience about what people can do so that they can overcome the challenges of the medical community and how can we, uh, you know, as patients get a better outcome? I think that you really need to start the mind shift of owning your own health. And that, like I said, or like Dr. Rawls has said, you know, the, the, doctor is really just an advisor and you are the driver of this journey and really owning that. And like you said, it is hard. And so as part of our journey, I really started cataloging everything that I could. I used a symptom tracker, a symptom tracker to write down the ins and outs of everything. And I think you also need the support network around you because you know, Russ wouldn't have been able to take care of and do all that things for himself. He needed to have me there to help walk him through and guide him through that process. Um, being organized and really, once you do the tracking, you need to kind of sort through and look for trends for what, what are the things that are making the difference? What's moving the needle? I mean, as I said, Russ was on buckets of pills. It was really difficult for me to find what are the the things that are actually really making a difference. And that was, you know, sorting through the data and looking for trends and then going into those doctor's appointments prepared, you know, summarizing what you had seen and what you had learned and what your questions were. Those were the biggest nuggets came out of our, you know, our treatment journey was trying to figure out, okay, you know, the, what are the things that were the big actors, the Bartonella, the ketones, you know, some of his eating habits. Like I really had figured out the things that were moving the needle one way or the other. And that comes from the patient. And I think that can be really daunting because, you know, I'm, I've been in the biomedical community and I have some background in immunology and other things. And so other people that I've said this to are like, well, I don't know anything about medicine and in treatment and so forth. And, and I think the answer to that is, is that you don't have to, you just have to know yourself and your body. You know, you're an expert in you and you know, what's right. And you know, what doesn't feel right. And really just listening to those cues and not letting people talk you out of it, not letting a doctor tell you it's okay when you know that it's not and trying to figure out what those needles and those drivers are for you, cataloging it and then believing in it, no matter what the doctor says. And if the doctor isn't listening to you, then find another doctor. You know, that's the key. But one of the things I think that's beautiful about your book, and I certainly want to urge all caretakers to purchase what lurks in the woods, because part of the other lessons that you taught, or one of the most important lessons you taught is no matter who's trying to talk you out of telling you that you're sick, whether it be your spouse or your family members or your coworkers, if you're not feeling well, you're not feeling well. If your signals are telling you you're sick, you're sick. So it's not just doctors who do that, but it's also a lot of other people around you who are well-intentioned, right? You loved your husband, you wanted him to get better, but you were thinking that it was perhaps his upbringing or the trauma that he hadn't overcome or um, you know the changes that he had made in, um, in his lifestyle because he was gonna be Mr. Mom. All of those things were, were causing you to signal to him that you weren't sick when in fact he really was sick, right? So uh, I, I think, you know, you've, you've written the guide for caretakers uh, and the tips and trips associated with caretakers. And I really want to urge folks to read this book. But let, let's talk about, let's talk about the last question we ask everyone in Tick Boot Camp, and you've been really generous with your time. So I'm going to, I'm going to wind this down now and ask you, Nicole, um, if God forbid Ryan came into you after this podcast and he had a tick biting him, what would you do with Ryan so that he would not get sick and have to go on a difficult chronic Lyme disease journey? 
I mean, the first step is proper removal of the tick. Um, you know, obviously save the tick and in the cases have it tested to see what diseases might be, you know, there. I do believe in prophylactic treatment, you know, with antibiotics and getting early care. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't cover all the co-infections. And as we've talked about, some of those co-infections can be worse than Lyme. And so in that case, it goes back to really being in tune with your body and really understanding what symptoms are and not necessarily thinking of symptoms in really distinct categories. You know, as we talked about Lyme in my mind was a rash and a fever and, you know, it wasn't depression and mood swings and irritability. And, and when I say Lyme, I mean, Lyme plus or tick-borne illnesses. And so I think being open to the fact that, you know, what your baseline is. And when you start veering off of your baseline, you need to start listening to your body. And then if you see something that's different, seek out a functional practitioner that will help you get to the bottom of it and won't dismiss you. Um, and, and really trying to find that root cause, you know, in conjunction with your desire. So Nicole, before we, uh, we wrap up here, uh, I do want to talk to you about the title of your book, what lurks in the woods, right? And, and I love the title and I really loved the title after I, um, after I read the book, but one of the things that I want you, I want you to, think about here in the, in the spirit of this advice that we're giving people is, of course, we know that you don't have to be in the woods to get Lyme disease, right? Um, yes. You know, like Lyme, Lyme can, Lyme doesn't just lurk in the woods, Lyme lurks everywhere. And in fact, 80% of the people who have uh, been diagnosed with Lyme disease actually came in contact with Lyme in their own backyard, that a majority of the Lyme uh, cases do not come from what's lurking in the woods, but it's what's lurking in your backyard or what's on your dog when your dog comes in and you pet her, which has happened to me, and, um, and you get your, you get a tick that way. So um, I love the title of your book. I love your book. I strongly want to urge our followers to listen uh, to this episode and then purchase the book and give the book to uh, the people in your lives who are helping you go through this journey because Lyme disease is not uh, a personal journey. It's a family journey. And there has not been enough written by caretakers and for caretakers. And, uh, and we have now a guide and a Bible for caretakers. It's what lurks in the, in the woods written by Nicole Bell. So thank you, Nicole, for uh, writing this book. And thank you for spending so much time with us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Nicole Bell. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ms. Bell, please visit her Instagram page at Nicole Danielle Bell. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.